0: This is horse spit honky, That dog don't hunt, and frankly, this will not fly. What's stuck in your teeth? I've been at this Sadie Hawkins dance for four whole minutes, and not one Dame Lady Broad Missy or Chica has asked me to get out there and cut a rug with her. I got itchy heels, and let me tell you, I don't have two left feet. I got two correct feet and four thumbs, but that's neither here nor there. Stop pointing with those things. The Sadie Hawkins dance, you gotta wait for the women to come to you. Well, not anymore. You tell Sadie Hawkins, sad guy hops in. I'm going up to the first refined woman I see, and I'm gonna say to her, I'm gonna say, excuse me, madam, would you care to get crunk with me? And she will reply indubitably. And she will twerk upon me, and it will be a night of serious dougie. Here, hold my evening post.
1: Yeah, whatever. It'll feel good to have something in my hands.
0: And now to cross the gender line and see what's on the menu for tonight. Hmm. Man, man, guy, dude, bro, gentleman, sir. Oh, sugar bums, what the hell's all this? It's a sausage fest in here, a hot dog symposium, a veritable banana plantation. Where's all the women?
1: Hey, Daniel, have you read this evening post you gave to hold?
0: No, I use it to make wee-wee on like a little baby puppy dog.
1: Well, apparently every single woman on Earth got fed up with men and packed up, left Earth and went back to Venus. Oh, and also Mr. Henderson apparently got his first prize revoked from the county fair. It turns out it wasn't the biggest tomato. Just
0: a red beach ball. Nobody checked. Venus? No! Uh, who needs them? Let's just go see some bands play. What girl groups are performing tonight? That's the only kind of music I like.
1: Alright, let me check the listing. Okay, we have the Spice Boys, the Goo Goo Guys, and Jose and the penis cats.
0: Well, maybe let's just try the radio. Anything to get my mind off these missing women. <coughs> <coughs> uh, ba 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 <coughs> Venus, eh? Well, I didn't rent this Canadian tuxedo for nothing. I'm dancing with a lady tonight if it's the last thing I do. We're going to space. Hop into my spaceship, the SS plot device. SS stands for spaceship, you know. Prepare for space!
1: There she is, Venus. Goddess of love, planet of women. Let's send a seductive transmission no woman could resist. We've been reading the entire backlog of Dear Abby, so I think we know what women want. Attention, citizens of... Venus, we are two men from Earth requesting permission to land. We are prepared to offer the following. A lifetime supply of Mountain Dew, code red. The complete works of Tom Clancy. We're prepared to let you pick whatever James Bond movie we watch tonight. Unless you'd rather watch wrestling instead.
0: And we promise to always rush you out of the house when you're trying to do your makeup. Huh, they launched a missile at us. I don't know women, is that a good thing? Must be that time of the solar cycle.
1: Oh, it's speeding up! Ah, we deserve it. We're a couple of pig-headed boys. We don't know what women want. We don't know what women want because we don't listen. We're so damned to it.
0: Hey, it's slowing down. They must have eaten something.
1: You idiot! It's dumb comments like that that made them leave us in the first place. Why do you have to look at everything like it's a us-versus-them situation? They aren't just
0: the other gender, they're people, and maybe they left because we aren't capable of seeing that. Hey, the missile stopped. Just like a woman to make empty th- <laughs>
1: Hi there, this is Allie Meekly. I'm Greg, friend. I'm Daniel, buddy. Welcome to episode 51 of Allie Meekly. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, do you know where we are? Episode 51 is where we are. No,
0: let's tell people where we really are. Okay. Live from the Grand Canyon.
1: How do we make it to the bottom? We don't remember. I'm <laughs> Went missing on that kidneys. skywalk and <laughs> here we
0: are. Welcome. I'm going to welcome you again to episode 51. Has anyone welcomed you yet? Hey, hang on, Greg, give me a second with the audience. Has anyone welcomed you yet? Have you Have you been served a drink? Has anyone put your fork on the left side of the plate yet? That's not where it goes. It? it does go there, Probably. It? Oh, what, it do <laughs> what, do what, what do I know? I don't know. What do I know? I eat my spaghetti with my hands. What do I know? It's so the way you're supposed to. <laughs> the, way, the way I used to do. That's how you, that's how you
1: know it's ready yeah, with so your you know, hands.
0: That's how you know there's no shivs in it, like, <laughs> like the mafia was always trying to do to me.
1: This isn't jail prison. I know that because there's a lot of shivs and this glass this, in the This isn't jail prison? This is in, oh my God, It's <laughs> in not jail spaghetti.
0: Yeah, this isn't bathtub <laughs> spaghetti we are having here. This is like Mama used to make. All right, so speaking of Mama, episode 51, we're talking about the Mamas of Los Angeles. Okay. okay the mamas and the papas <laughs> <laughs> that's another episode 52 52 this one Keep is california dreaming hey don't hit the table we're recording
1: in a different table tonight. there is uh
0: about 70
1: chairs right behind daniel yeah. and it's sad and like anything else we've ever done any other live event we've it's ever done
0: lincoln at the theater well, yeah it's women's history month it's um what is it it's march march march, march to re- september nailed it so, so
1: this episode is about uh historic women of la People yeah we've made a big uh splash
0: in the yeah city. so yeah we're gonna be uh we talking need about women Women
1: ever heard of them talking
0: ladies here greg do you want to start us I off here i would love to
1: oh i'm doing i'm starting a new thing where i name each segment i do have fun thank you this one's called it's a business doing pleasure with you <laughs>
0: I can't wait till you get tired of doing this. <laughs>
1: no, nah, it's happened already. Uh, this is, I didn't do it for the second segment. Oh. <laughs> it's the oldest profession. And the women puppeteers of this profession- is it podcaster? Yeah. The women puppeteers of this profession, the madams, have been plentiful and have passed from one to the next with characteristics similar to a cutthroat corporate coup. Today, I'll be talking about one of the madams I've been very interested in for some time now. I keep seeing pictures of her in crime books of, from like the 30s and 40s. And I'm like, well, I know what she did. I know that she's a madam, but I don't know much about her. Today, I'll be talking about Brenda Allen. Madam mm. to the stars. Mm. Uh, her real name is Mary Mitchell. She also went by the name sure. Brenda Allen Burns. And she also went by the name Marie Bellanek. Is it Bella Neck? Do you want to see it? Yeah. Belong? Bal- is it belong? Belonk. I put Belanek. Okay, so not n- much is known about Brenda Allen's upbringing. We don't know where she's from, but we do know her real, real name is Mary Mitchell. We also don't know much about her later years in life, so it seems like she exists solely in the years from the
0: 30s to the 50s. Let's <laughs> get, think she was a replicant?
1: She might have been a replicant. Uh, I've only seen the first Blade Runner. Maybe, is the second Blade Runner about <laughs> I've, 50s I've only, Los Angeles? 2050s.
0: Uh, oh! Tw- <gasps> It's um, uh, mid-century Los Angeles, but a different century. I've only seen the first six cuts of Blade Runner. I don't get that.
1: <laughs> I've only seen six hours of behind-the-scenes footage, and a bunch of people tell me it's a really important movie. I don't, I, I don't get that.
0: Um, I bought an Atari. What more do they want? <laughs> I never
1: thought I'd hate a movie that Harrison Ford would have said, but here we are. Mm. Six days, seven nights. Uh, mm, let's give a- up. Uh,
0: Morning Glory is the work cut of Morning Glory. You, you <laughs> think that he might not be actually be a news broadcaster? All right, What's back a- to your sex Thank talk you. or whatever. It's,
1: uh, it's, calm down, okay? I know you're getting herny over there. <laughs> That's why we
0: have to watch out for this table wiggling
1: what's that is that a dog running out of the table yeah it's a dog let's give a brief history of the madams who came before brenda allen it should be said in up LA? front yeah not all of them that goes of course back to it's a little profession probably goes back to the you know 17th century but not in this case because i just want to talk about 20th century madams 17th century <laughs> yeah 17th that... century madams i
0: mean it's the oldest profession there have been professions before the 1800s
1: no i'm just saying in los angeles because it was
0: someone was selling someone's flesh earlier than that let's
1: go to the, the archives you think michael holland has uh yeah. documents on that he's got Receipts. all the
0: used diaphragms of
1: they all made of wood. Um, okay, so it should be said up front that the cops... We have should be
0: children listening to this now. It should be
1: said up front that the cops in this era, the 20s to the 30s, were clearly on the take. It wasn't just that era, obviously, but you know what I mean. For any madam that I talk about, there are cops that have been paid to offer security and Mm -hmm. clearance for all this stuff. The current madam, whoever she is... the second
0: oldest profession.
1: What's the first one? Cops?
0: No, the oldest profession is prostitution. Second oldest is cops being paid to protect protect, prostitutes.
1: Later, they were given badges. Um, (laughs) So, whoever the current madam is...
0: They didn't need them because they stunk thinking badges, not the prostitutes. Thank
1: you. I, I, I got it at, by the third sentence. I figured out what you were doing.
0: I think the badge is a replicant. Go on.
1: Please don't make Blade Runner the joke that runs throughout this episode. <laughs> I really hate that. I would really hate that if that was a thing that happened. So whoever the current madam is could usually count on the cops to give a pre-raid warning to clear out some of the customers or Johns whose names were pretty big. First, Almost
0: as big as... Stop that. I was trying to add flavor to the joke. <laughs> I mean, we were talking about big. You heard that thump.
1: <laughs> so first there was Lee Francis, who was quite generous to the police department. For the arriving vice squad who'd kick in the door or whatever, she'd offer chilled French champagne and Russian caviar and was waiting for them. <laughs> After no one was getting arrested, the officers would sit down and enjoy their royal treatment.
0: So they would kick down the door and then sit down and it's have just, champagne. Yeah, and, yeah. and they
1: would go through the formalities of like, blah, 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 blah fill out paperwork and then throw it away <laughs> and then eat all the food.
0: Do you have saltines? <laughs>
1: there's a prostitute named saltine at some point she (laughs) must at some point she must have missed a payment or whatnot or put the wrong caviar because she was arrested and spent 30 days in jail for morals charges and if you're thinking what damage could be done in 30 days when you're not you know around your business know that she was quickly usurped by ann forrester who was dubbed by the police the black widow i don't know why they would call her that because they all work for her during the late 30s after some time running a lavish prostitution business the black widow was raking like $3,000 $3,000 a week and collected like big time Hollywood clientele I can't get any names on anybody right. but supposedly the files containing names of the male customers was uh, obviously with any madam you gotta look out for your little black book but I, I can't find any
0: they keep the names of the customers in yeah. the little black book
1: yeah so like all the big Hollywood stars you get your name and what you like and what girls you like and how much uh, you pay okay. in a book this is why every madam has to protect her book obviously but I can't find any online I would just want a PDF also, of a, it's well protected yeah, it's, I want a PDF did you check
0: under her mattress
1: <laughs> is that a PDF yeah. is that a, <laughs> <laughs> a server from what I can tell under her
0: mattress Org. don't <laughs> so, go there <laughs> please kids don't go there
1: from what i could tell guy mcafee who was a former vice cop we talked about him in the booze episode was the boss of the business for Forrester, and it was the black widow that managed his prostitution business she was the one who took in brenda allen according to mickey cohen's book brenda was turned out quotations whatever that means <laughs> in san bernardino which and then she ended up in los angeles after that she made her professional debut as a teenage streetwalker in a seedy stretch of west 6th street between union avenue and alvarado sort of where the famous cop stopped the pacific dining car is around there i could see that yeah, could see that
0: too so uh, <laughs> i'm sure someone's there right now
1: let's Get in the car! Um, (laughs) The dining car. (laughs) She was discovered by Forrester and was taken off the street and into a pricey brothel. Under McAfee, Forrester ran multiple houses of prostitution promising girls net incomes of $304 a month and overseeing, managing, pimping, exploiting, whatever you want to call it, about 200 women.
0: That's like half the women in the city at the time. There was
1: 400 women in 1920.
0: Um, That's 51% of the population of women.
1: Her reign came to an end and she was convicted of pandering and went to jail. Pandering. Pandering. Selling ladies. Oh. At Forrester's trial, Mayor Fletcher Bowron, you know the famous reform mayor unsuccessfully pleaded for a lenient sentence because quote her information was of great value in determining the identity of those police department members whose honesty was questionable hmm, shady so she's arrested in 1940 and sits in a jail on charges of running a white slavery ring i read an article the article went over the court transcripts which i couldn't find and this line was used get ready for it the black widow preyed on the sexual innocence of young women but worse yet was associated with interracial sexual commerce <laughs> okay worst generation ever <laughs> thanks her testimony also provided a window into the business operations of a Los Angeles organization called The Syndicate which uh, you remember again for the alcohol episode Mm-mm. consisted of a group of men Charles Crawford keep that name in your mind Kent Kate a Guy McAfee and some others the antivirus right guy yeah it's a joke that you made before um, <laughs>
0: I made that about Norton Simon
1: I believe <laughs> I don't know let's listen to all our episodes and all the jo- the throwaway jokes that we have
0: believe me they should be thrown away <laughs>
1: <laughs> the syndicate had a uh, group of men who had absorbed many brothel operators and sex workers into a more top to bottom meaning hierarchy not innuendo top to bottom <laughs> business structure which, succeed, Six to nine. which succeeded in dominating not only prostitution but also gambling, illegal liquor, um, smuggling in the city. Their power came from the fact that they, of course, ran city hall. They were the city hall gang, so no one was going to get in trouble because consequences for for other people. So even if just squeals on them, so what? No one can do anything about it. So she served four years for this for pandering. She must have not paid the right people, and we know that even thirty days away from your business is too long. So it's nineteen forty. Who's going to take over? But of course, the twenty-one-year-old, shapely, statuesque, redheaded <laughs> party girl herself. Brenda Allen. Although I heard by 1948, she was 36. So I don't know how old she was by 1940. Let's just say that yeah, she was 28. Older woman and beautiful. <laughs> 28. So, 28 beautiful older woman. She's 28. Uh, <laughs> with the door wide open and the well tuned operation that the Black mm-hmm. Widow had set up already, Madam Brenda Allen became the empress of Alley Vice, selling dirty. That's what we're going to call whoopee to 1940s I'm era millionaires. I'm making dirty here. She's selling dirty to 1940s eras millionaires and movie stars. I read this in an LA Times article. Brenda Allen was a teetotaler with a hint of Southern drawl. She had a mind like a a cash register. Having she gave s- exact change. Yes, yeah, she gave exact change. She went Wah! with her mouth. That's all I could read without having to subscribe to time. She was always all friends with crime lords Mickey Cohen and Bugsy. I almost killed Gerbil Siegel. Brenda was cautious in many regards, and others not so much. Instead of running a brothel that had like a centralized location, a body house, a house of ill repute, if you were the cat all- ranch, cat ranch, if you will, a rabbit house, Changed a rabbit her- tunnel. No, that's an act. <laughs> Brenda Allen ran a telephone exchange service to communicate with clients. By 1948, she had 114 pleasure girls. Sex workers in her harem, and she was raking in about nine thousand dollars a week from this. Oh my this.
0: God! Did they do phone
1: sex too? Oh, Did that pro- exist? I mean, they had to. They had radio programs, right? It matched the time, to- the entertainment of the time.
0: <laughs> now talk like the shadow. <laughs> <laughs> only the shadow knows
1: where to kiss your mouth. um I don't know how whoopee works. The girls were analyzed as to their more intimate characteristics, which were then carefully noted on file cards for cross-tabulation with their clients' preferences. Gross. Brenda oh, my Allen my would take fifty percent off the top, a third going to pay the corrupt cops, doctors, lawyers and bail bondsmen, and the rest was divided amongst the girls. Her call girl service ran out of her apartment at Casa Fedora, which still stands at 861 South Fedora, which is close to Vermont Avenue and James M Wood Boulevard in Koreatown. And now it goes by Fedora Woods, which sounds like the name of a golfer. or something. <laughs> she could be reached by phone designation. And this is real H O two five five five. Now she didn't run like overtly sex work. She ran an ad for her business, though. And anybody in the know knew what she was selling. She ran an ad in the players directory, which is published by a M P A S. It was later discovered that the client was made up of of 250 entertainment industry figures, politicians, and gangsters, which is why she's referred to as the Madam to the Stars. She distributed her phone number to select cabbies, bartenders, and bellhops to put the word out to the classiest clients. It was rumored that she ran a Dun and Bradstreet check on prospective customers to ensure their suitability. I can't tell if this next fact
0: is what cautious. What does that mean?
1: Dun and Bradstreet isn't like they don't they check your finances and stuff?
0: Dun and Bradstreet? I've yeah. never heard of that before.
1: Or maybe it's old. I looked it up and I forgot. Eh, people listening probably know.
0: <laughs> They're all old. Except for those
1: kids. Except for that nine eleven year old who can't listen anymore. Sorry kids.
0: Not this one. Well we're doing pets next month. Dead pets. No.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this next fact, I can't tell if it's reckless or not. She boasted that she would never spend a day in jail, though she went to jail many times. <laughs> Brenda Allen, what's your secret? Well, one thing that Brenda Allen, aside from her previous madams, is that she was in a relationship with a LAPD sergeant, Albert Jackson, as the LA Times put it, her lover and business partner. And I'm going to henceforth refer to him as Mr. Brenda Allen. It's cautious in a way that she has a trust with the LAPD beyond a financial transaction, although he was getting $50 per week from each girl, so roughly $5,000 a week. This relationship kept her business safe from the entanglements from the law, which along with how she ran her business helped her thrive. And although I can't tell if she was having another relationship with another LAPD sergeant, Charles Stoker or not, he was getting paid too. But the LAPD was on the verge of changing. This is three years away from the Parker years of LAPD. We haven't gotten into Chief William Parker yet, but he single-handedly reformed LAPD from being criminals to more secretive criminals.
0: (laughs) That's Uh, a lot of money. $50 per per girl? girl? Like, is that for one night of work? They're making fifty dollars from one of these people. No, no.
1: He's getting fifty dollars per girl, but she's making probably more than that.
0: More than that? That's a lot of money for the forties. Is there a nah. coupon code?
1: Yeah, but it's a dirty word. You <laughs> can get arrested for it.
0: Use promo code scandalous.
1: Nah. Parker was uh, on the verge of coming, in. so a lot of the old oh, orders. Yeah, he was a lot of the, Sorry, kids. The old established orders yeah, were that's... about to crumble. Um, you done? <laughs> you done warning kids about something that we didn't say? Oh, we. Oh, said we it. said it. They could piece it together. They're smart. P
0: Pea- sit. Which oh. is a command? Some of those guys liked <laughs> to dogs that they walk, right? I'm for confused. Pets
1: next month, pets next month. So it's February 1947, and Brenda Allen and Mr. Brenda Allen, Sergeant Jackson, <laughs> are sitting one night.
0: Sergeant Mr. Brenda Allen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> one night they are sitting in the car outside of Brenda Allen's place, Casa fedora They're necking, oh. and there's an attempted robbery. The stickup man was a Roy Pee Wee Lewis, who had targeted Allen and Jackson because he believed Jackson would have the payoff money that Allen delivered every month for police security. Lewis stuck a machine gun into the open window of the <laughs> car where Jackson. And Allen were necking and demanded money. Jackson pretended to be reaching for a wallet but pulled out a bullet wallet instead. That's a gun. That's where he kept his bullets safe. Lewis shoots Jackson, but Jackson fires back and kills Lewis while his getaway driver sped off. That's all fine and dandy, but not all the payoff money in the world could keep the presses away. So Jackson had to tell the police that Allen was a PD stenographer, which how would they not know that she isn't? They work for the department, but that was concrete evidence, that, but it wasn't revealed until a year later by the Daily News that I was actually Brenda Allen. Nobody knew for a while. Their liaison was revealed, which of course was a huge scandal. Along with that, one of their telephones was tapped. That's a thing that Parker and his pal Robert Kennedy were huge fans of. But this recording <laughs> was brought to you by electronics engineer Jay Arthur Vouse.
0: Va- this wiretap, brought, this to, was you brought to you by Jay Arthur
1: Vouse. If you like the wiretaps from the Cohens, and <laughs> <laughs> this wiretapping further cemented their relationship—a relationship that was revealed to the world by Mickey Cohen when they were trying to bring the hammer down on Cohen. This was like his ace in the hole. This exposed a huge corruption LAPD, and of course, was one of the last straws in an aging crime syndicate before a huge reform swept. Through Allen and Jackson were finally arrested after Allen was caught trying to recruit a young girl named Audrey Davis to her harem who turned out to be a police lady Hmm. the key players in Allen's operation included not only Jackson and Stoker but other vice cops paid to protect sex workers the scandal forced police chief Clements Horrell into early retirement his place was temporarily taken by former Marines Corp William Wharton who was eventually replaced by hard-nosed William Parker who of course led the LAPD reform her arrest shook up the Hollywood elite which instantly began buzz with rumors about a little black box containing the names of 250 clients coming out but a nothing in no. now no it's evidence. a black
0: box yeah, it's interesting because we might have a black box coming up in one of the later ones well there uh, isn't but you know airplanes
1: airplanes uh <laughs> the idea of one uh, the idea of technology that, <laughs> that would have later would existed have later, <laughs> but did it in this and case could have helped but yeah of, of course it wasn't there <laughs> well they did find her little
0: black book brenda allen was, sent- it was giving off a sonar signal <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's the only thing i found brenda allen was sentenced. and her teeth that hurt my feelings and nothing else we said hurt my feelings that hurt my feelings a little bit <laughs> brenda allen was sentenced to only one year in prison serving just eight months with a five-year probation
0: so what what is her crime exactly? Just selling, being a madam?
1: Being a madam, selling okay. ladies for sex. All right. Also like paying police officers, although that's yeah, okay. on them or yeah. than her, but still the fact that she did that doesn't look good.
0: We're not guilty. You're guilty. You're
1: guilty. You, you, took, they, the you took the money.
0: <laughs> I'm not, we don't have the money. Where's our money? It's not
1: a crime to offer you money you for protection. Off, though. <laughs> the sentence that Jackson and Stoker were given are unknown. I don't know why. A short time after her release, Alan married former Navy pilot Robert Cash,
0: hmm? but they filed for- <laughs> Always going for cash.
1: But they filed for divorce just after a few years. now. Right Allen's immediate successor in 1950 was, was 29-year-old Barry, ben, um, sorry, yeah, Barry Benson, I think it's a lady, who conducted business in the 13-room Moorish Castle with red and purple rooms on Shuler Road, north of Sunset Strip.
0: Uh, oh. Benson's business was- <laughs> uh, malfunctioning. He must be a replicant. Uh, I don't get that. He must have heard a poem about a bird and malfunctioned. <laughs> <laughs> Benson's business was the first one to
1: go under after William Parker took over. Mm-hmm. Brenda Allen retired into obscurity and died in 1968. It's literally all we know about her.
0: And there's no- nothing after when she got,
1: I, I did pretty thorough searches but I couldn't yeah. really find much because I don't know what I mean her real name but then like who knows how many names she we, had after she got married you
0: know what I'm kind of noticing in this and my first story and then look trying to find other stories uh women's history not well documented no no. Past. my next
1: one is but it's almost like over
0: documented mm, where like because well, she, <laughs> she died yeah no she documented it I oh, didn't say yeah. she died it's, well she died they all die we all die we all die Greg yeah, well, that's Brenda well, Allen seller of ladies seller <laughs> of ladies lady of ladies well you know what happens when you do bad things what tell me the police get involved
1: stop it sometimes (laughs) they want money does this one want money
0: bad girls bad girls what you gonna do what you gonna do when a cop's hire that looks like you that's right this story is about the woman who became the first female lapd officer alice stebbins born june 13th 1873 in glamorous cosmopolitan manhattan Kansas.
1: Oh, Kansas.
0: The city that always sleeps.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The city that only sleeps.
0: (laughs) She followed her family because she had no other choice to Hiawatha, Kansas, where her dad started his own newspaper. But a Kansas life was not for her. She moved away to go to Oberlin College in Ohio, and then she went to the Hartford Theological Seminary in Connecticut, where she split her studies between two subjects. One was Old Testament history, and and one was criminology. And as you can guess... became she, god she, she was a junior god at her school she was drawn more towards one of these subjects than the other so she became a pastor just like we always knew she mm-hmm. would she started filling in for pastors who were on vacation throughout the northeast she became the first female preacher in maine closest thing before that was a lobster and by 1900 she had a permanent position as a pastor's assistant at the plymouth church in brooklyn new york the real one in brooklyn alabama just walking around manhattan new york like this isn't anything like kansas <laughs> but the whole of her middle America roots was way too strong so she moved back into the Nuggety Christian Center of the country and she pastored around there until she was given a full-time position in Perry, Oklahoma in 1903 making her the first female pastor in Oklahoma as well. Wow. Closest thing previously was uh Two lobsters. <laughs> Two lobsters and a lot of dust. Here she met a man named Frank Wells, but who cares what his name is? And she married him becoming Alice Stebbins Wells. Mm-hmm. And they had three kids together. But in 1909, it was time for a change. And for people in the early 1900s, that always meant moving to Los Angeles. Yeah, it really so did. If you feel depressed, move to Los Angeles.
1: They have a lot of sun there. The sun make you depressed?
0: <laughs> I mean, the saddest thing there is three lobsters. Here, Wells became a social worker trying to help out women and children. But seeing as how women were still 11 years away From getting the right to vote at that point she had a hard time trying making any lasting changes in the system so she did see one job though that she felt would give her the proper power to protect women and children a position known for its power and abuse thereof an officer in the los angeles police department get it she had Stabbing. she had da- stab, it. stab, stab it! it she had dabbled in criminology at church so she figured why not she was qualified to do it so the only qualification she was missing was needing to wear a cup when she played football if you catch my meaning she was not a man oh okay I get drift I- now <laughs> women had been a part of some police forces since even the 1840s or 1890s mm-hmm. but they were as matrons or workers which meant that they only worked in the prisons to take care of female prisoners yeah, uh, I've seen the alienist I get it is that what that's about kind of I Yeah, how could it not be about aliens? I know, right? It it had purple in the the international color of aliens.
1: It's called UFO, but it's not about aliens. (laughs) It's
0: called the X-Files, but it's about cops now. (laughs) I guess they were kind of cops. It's believed now that... (laughs) Alien cops. (laughs) Spooky police. So it's believed now that a woman named Mary Owens was hired at the Chicago Police Department in 1891, which is earlier than they originally believed. This woman did have the power to arrest people, but her duties were restricted just to child labor law violations.
1: Okay, she could arrest children that are... Uh, working overtime. (laughs)
0: You're working too hard.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sal over here.
0: Then there was Lola Baldwin, who was hired by the Portland, Oregon police in 1908 as a female detective. Cool. But it's not believed that she had the power to arrest people. So it's up for debate. But at this point in time, it doesn't seem that there was an on-the-beat police officer with the power to arrest in the United States. So in Los Angeles, there definitely was not one. But that didn't stop Alice. Get it, Alice. Alice doesn't live in Kansas anymore. That combines way too much stuff. That made me nervous. We're
1: crossing universes here. What is
0: this? (laughs) We're crossing the Alice Doesn't Live Here universe and the Oziverse. We represent the Veterans Guild. Or what is Alice Doesn't Live Here anymore I don't about? Know. Isn't it about a Vietnam veteran? I about
1: drug. Let's go ask Alice. I don't know. Who cares? Nobody listening. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, they care. The 9 and 11 year olds, they care. 9 and 11 cares. <laughs> Never forget those two kids. In May 1910, she started a petition. She said on it, children and abused and sexually assaulted women need a female police officer to confide in. Most women were extremely uncomfortable in reporting crimes to male officers and that, that she should be hired by the LAPD to take care of this. So I could see that so she got a hundred people to sign it, which at that time was 95% of the city. <laughs> and and she brought it in front of the city council, the police commissioner and mayor George Alexander. And in a decision I'm really surprised by all these old white men agreed. And on September 12, 1910, at the age of 37, Alice Stebbins Wells was sworn in as a detective with the LAPD, the first female police officer with full power to arrest people. She was given a telephone call, call box key, a rule book, a first aid book, and a badge. What they didn't give her was a weapon, a uniform, or any formal training at all.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, the weapon, I could see them not giving it to her. Did other cops have weapons? Probably. Yeah. But they, the did.
0: For- they did. Okay. The formal training could help. Or a, a uniform. Or, well, I, uh, guess they, I guess they didn't. I mean, who's going to... What do they know They're about designing women's clothes? <laughs> 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 they all brought their own chaps from nah. the Civil War. <laughs> so weapon and training she wasn't worried about, but not having a uniform caused problems for her. Because oh, yeah. in those days, cops would get free rides on the trolleys around town, which would have helped her more than any of the other cops because she made $75 a month compared to their $102 a month.
1: She should arrest them for committing a crime of underpaying her uh, for being uh, a lady.
0: Are you putting down our LAPD officers? Our boys in blue? Our boys in blue? The the boys of summer? (laughs) She wanted to take the trolley for free. She hopped on board and she showed her badge to the conductor who refused to believe that she was a cop and he accused her of stealing her husband's badge. (laughs) Go back home. Go curl your hair. Give this back to your husband. I no, you
1: you know you're putting handcuffs on me, but I don't believe it. <laughs> what is this? Yes. Your husband's handcuffs? What is this? What an
0: ass. So she decided that she's going to... She sewed her own uniform. She made her own. It was khaki-colored jacket and a long skirt. It looked pretty good. The department even gave her a new badge that clarified who she was. Really? It's- a cop? <laughs> I'm not joking. It said police woman's badge number one. Oh on yeah. And a thumbs up. A female police officer was so interesting to people that her hiring, it became a national headline. One paper said, if you happen to be prowling around the streets late at night in a suspicious manner and are accosted by a woman who informs you in a gentle voice, <laughs> oh she is an officer of the law and then flashes flashes a tar on you. I think flashes a... That star? star you're absolutely right i was a cowboy so i brought it from the civil war (laughs) it's made out of uh, rebels flashes a star on you to make you believe it Uh, make you believe it you better believe it it. justin bieber was they were just getting ready for bieber mania or whatever you give me bieber uh you better believe it (laughs) don't be alarmed or ask any questions but give an explanation for it will be mrs alice Stebbin wells the only woman on the police department of los angeles i
1: want that writer to get fired hard (laughs) he's
0: dead now who cares not only was her position so novel to people the idea of a female police officer was also uncontrollably hilarious to all the newspapers. They didn't know what to call her. Uh, so they referred to her as Officeress or Officerette or the woman policeman.
1: That's respectable a little bit. Kind of. Kind. I mean, like, <laughs> they definitely saw like the direction to go in. It's and that's a lady the, man. They saw the, the correct direction. They just weren't walking towards it yet.
0: <laughs> they saw the light and they decided to go somewhere darker. <laughs> she knew they were making fun of her, but she tried to ignore it. She told the Times this is serious work and I do hope the newspapers will not Dude, try to make poor. fun of it, which makes me really sad thing. I know. Always late to the party, Hollywood eventually cashed in on her popularity four years later in 1914 with a movie about her called The Police Woman starring her. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I I'm thought sure it was going to that- be starring a man. It was starring Charlie Chaplin in the <laughs> funniest woman makeup. You should have seen him trying to get on that trolley. <laughs> Uh, a pure comedy. Right after she was hired, a new ordinance was made that said no young girl can be questioned by a male officer. Such oh. work is delegated solely to police women who, by their womanly sympathy and intuitions, are able to gain the confidence of their younger sisters.
1: I know you're trying to be nice, but you're not. <laughs> I know.
0: I keep reading all these things of like, that's almost progressive. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's almost,
0: yeah. So seeing as how Wells was the only one in the LAPD capable of womanly sympathy, this became her domain in the department. She was assigned to work with the LAPD's first juvenile officer. Leo W. Marden, a man. She was assigned to watch over areas where the youth would congregate like dance halls, skating rinks, penny arcades, and the picture shows. Her duties eventually expanded to cover helping in searches for missing persons and the maintenance of a general information bureau for women seeking advice on matters within the scope of police departments. She also became the sole member of the Purity Squad, which maintained the suppression of unwholesome billboard displays and reported anything going on around town that she deemed. Unbecoming. You gonna go to arrest
1: that cigarette billboard? Yeah. The one with a girl's knee. You yeah. gonna go do that?
0: Get back home. <laughs> Does your husband know you're a billboard? Why are you bringing this billboard to church? It's got to learn. <laughs> Carrying it through the door. <laughs> open the doors that are only open during the Ascension Day or whatever. I got to fit this thing through. In 1911, she got a play at the Mason Opera House called The Girl in the Taxi shut down because she felt it was too immoral. 1911 was also the year of her first and only arrest during her time with the LAPD of a man named James Gibbons for she... ogling her.
1: Good. Go she
0: was standing in front of a theater on Main Street when Gibbons walked by and winked and ogled at her. So she grabbed him and walked him to the central police station where they booked him. And then when Gibbon's wife came to bail him out, she explained that he had a nerve disease. And that's why he was winking at her.
1: I wish you could see my face right now. I can't help it.
0: I don't think you're attractive, really.
1: (laughs) I I swear. But
0: she wasn't just shutting down Broadway shows and arresting disabled people. She was an active voice in the community of women in LA. And she did exactly what she intended to when she joined the LAPD and used her new power and influence to help other women. And two years after she joined, there were two other women who became LAPD officers. In 1913, there was a rash of robberies in the city. So a lot of the local women's groups invited Wells to come give them talks on how their members could stay safe and protect themselves. In these lectures, she's quoted as saying, uh, quotes from the past, if she has the pluck when she meets an annoyer or a hold-up man, scream first. Then use the first weapon at hand. Don't forget the trusty hat pin. That or a few well-chosen jujitsu tricks will help women when sneak thieves arrives or burglars invade their home. Remember, <laughs> remember that a burglar is under greater nervous strain than you are. The weapon nature gave a woman was a scream. But in my... But in more rural communities where someone might not hear you, then it would not be bad to know a few bone breaking tricks.
1: (laughs) I mean, she's not wrong. Those not are wrong. Good lessons about the hat pin. <laughs>
0: Be a woman, but if you have to, rip their throat out. <laughs> Gouge their eyes out with your thumbs. <laughs> so she was a really charismatic speaker. So she started doing more and more talks like these. She'd visit schools and women's organizations and give talks on social hygiene and sex ed, which was really, I mean, the 19 teens. That's yeah, that's great. That's really big. It's helpful. Yeah, I mean, I could use some. In 1914, she was allowed. I don't know what to do with this thing. In 1914, she was or how to clean it. In 1914, she was allowed to. To go on a speaking tour that took her as far as New York where she pleaded to the New York Assembly to allow women in their police departments and the reporters covering it had to say of her heartfelt plea she wore a khaki uniform and a large shield her brown hat with an attractive plume was distinctly feminine
1: the worst generation
0: every generation was the, <laughs> the worst, worst until uh, us until
1: us we did it right
0: I'm adding myself to the generation of those kids who are fighting for gun control change I'm really young I'm, I'm one of them I'm
1: really young Yeah. I'm,
0: I'm not am. part of your generation but still her tour even though they were just talking about her clothing. It was a success, and people actually did listen to her. She got New York and Massachusetts to make laws that towns with over 20,000 people had to have at least one female police officer. Before that, they just had four lobsters. In 1915, the National Conference of Charities and Corrections was held with policewomen coming from 14 different states with the purpose of forming an international association of policewomen. What they made eventually became known as the International Association of Police Women, and Wells was elected their president for the oh, wow. next five years. Their purpose was to form a community among the women who were now police officers, most of them thanks to the encouragement of Wells herself, and also to encourage more women to join up. And it actually worked. When the conference was held the next year, now policewomen from 22. Two different states were represented and also Canada. In 1917, Wells and the woman hired after her by the LAPD who was Minnie Barton. So she was the second woman in the LAPD and she was the first female parole officer for the LAPD. They both co-founded the Minnie Barton home where they would take in women who just got out of jail and teach them skills, things they could know to get jobs. And some women were even allowed to serve their sentences in that house. So this is now part of the Children's Institute of L.A. It got absorbed. It's been absorbed. Even though more women were Becoming cops, they still weren't being given the same tools for protection and training that the men got, so they had to be taught alternative ways to stay safe. So in 1918, Wells convinced UCLA to start a new class in their criminology department on training, training. female police officers. Uh-huh. So in 1924, she founded the Pan Pacific Association for Mutual Understanding, which I don't know what it is, but it sounds nice. Yeah, sounds pretty cool. I'd want a shirt. <laughs> we can sell them as merch. I don't know. <laughs> in 1928, she became the chairman and first president of uh, chairwoman of the Women's Peace Officers Association of California. In 1934, she was made a sergeant and also the LAPD historian, which allowed her to start the LAPD Museum, which she operated until she retired on November 1st, 1940, with somewhere around 50 female officers now working in the LAPD. When she retired, she gave her uniform to the LAPD archive, which we're going and we're going to try that on. Yeah. See how that sozmanship holds up on my boost. And <laughs> my, on, bosoms. My, my bosoms are too taut. <laughs> and on August 17th, 1957, she passed away, leaving behind an LAPD that had 1500 13 female officers, all thanks to her. She was buried at Forest Lawn with an LAPD honor guard made up entirely of women. Wow. James gibbons the serial ogler with a nerve disease, still on the loose.
1: Watch out, he might be winking at you, but he doesn't mean it. He just, his wife will explain it when you arrest him. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. When
0: you incapacitate him, his wife will explain everything. <laughs>
1: so, you gave me a cop? Who's out there telling the tales of the cops? The Shadow? <gasps> Let's ask him, he knows. This segment's going to be called <laughs> To Aggie, Keep Swinging. <laughs> there's the madam to the stars mine is
0: going to be called kiss kissed banged banged you c-
1: Keep working on it keep working on it So there's the madam to the stars that is like the femme fatale and crime boss But there's also another character in a good crime story that shouldn't be cast aside and that character is the toughest nails takes no s-word from anybody crime beat reporter and in Los Angeles crime history that character is played by one Aggie Underwood of the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, the first female city editor of a major newspaper. Big deal. Wow. So Aggie was born Agnes May Wilson in 1902, originally in San Francisco, but her family moved to Bellevue, Illinois. Moved into u- the Bellevue? <laughs> Illinois. Illinois, <laughs> that is. She spent some years in Bellevue. That's where <laughs> she grew up. Um for <laughs> youth- <Formative> years. <laughs> <Formative> <laughs> years. Childhood. In Bellevue. Her youthful years were pretty tragic. After her mom died when Aggie was six, her and her younger sister were basically orphaned and spent much of their childhood bouncing from home to home with their father, who was a German glassblower, tried to support oh. them. He blew glass. Everywhere. He blows glass, doesn't he? But he was a journeyman, so they obviously needed it everywhere. So he was yeah. traveling probably by foot. <laughs> I would imagine. <laughs> could wait, he could blow his home. own car? They were first taken after her mom died. His, her, you know, her her dad's working a lot and always out of town. So they were first taken to an uncle's house in Indiana. They were then taken to another home in Indiana. But not long after that, that family dumped them into an orphanage. Oh God! The sisters were separated at that point, which is a terrible yeah. thought to me. The younger one went to Portland, Indiana, and Iggy, uh, Indy, Iggy. I'm going to call her Iggy a lot by accident. <laughs> get ready for it. Aggie Pop. Uh, Aggie <laughs> went to three different homes in a short period of time and then was getting used to families getting used to her and then sending her back to public oh charity. She called
0: Public charity? Public is charity
1: was the word that wow. came up in her autobiography, which is great, by the way. She called herself incorrigible. Their dad came back and got both his daughters and then again dumped them on a relative's doorstep. That was a good home to her, though, even though she was once again separated from her sister. In this house, she learned a lot of life lessons and she was treated with respect by people that she respected. This is where she grew up and like got a lot of her formative years her first movie she saw when she was 13 was something called birth of a nation oh, um, no, which are you about, serious? i think last episode
0: yeah so 15, she loved it she
1: saw it at the white house which Woodrow wilson
0: bring the kids unless they're course. nine or eleven
1: at fifteen, she dropped out of high school and started working as a clerk in a basement of Carthright's department store, making five dollars an hour. Soon after her father died, she moved to San Francisco, nineteen eighteen, to be with another relative. Only when she arrived, she found that that relative had moved out, and now she had nowhere to go in a strange oh new God. metropolis with only a dollar fifty to her name. Uh, how old was she? I want to say she was like fifteen. I didn't bring the book with me. She has a description. Maybe I'll I'll record it and send it to you <laughs> later. She is four four okay so basically she walked around san francisco for 10 hours crying quietly to herself oh my God. Ca- I, uh, hey
0: we've all been there
1: carrying a wicker basket and squandering 10 mm-hmm. cents of her dollar on taffy that she chewed all day to savor it is this my autobiography <laughs> she fell asleep slash cried all night into the next day on a bench in union square when she came to from a delirious panic she had told her entire story to a woman who was seated next to her on that bench and that woman was a bookkeeper named dolly peterson an angel from heaven that took aggie to a methodist boarding house called the mary elizabeth inn and there a meth house? Meth You said meth house? What'd you say? Meth house? Mary Elizabeth in is Methodist boarding house. Aggie got a warm meal, a warm bath, and a warm bed, all because she had a letter from a Methodist clergyman from Portland in her wicker basket. She's like Felix with the bag of tricks, And she was able to, because of that letter, get permanent lodging huh. at this place. She soon got a job as a messenger at the White House department store. White House. Wait, what? <laughs> There's a department store called the White House. She got a job She was there. an aide
0: at the White House department store. <laughs> <The>
1: White House <coughs> department store. More good fortune came her way when she was able to use three months of another woman's tuition for business college and got handy at typing.
0: Wait, how did she get another woman's tuition? There
1: was a woman who only did three months of a year's program and left and so she, she, took her fil- she took her identity. She, she Dick spilled- Wickley. What's funny was that two years ago if I made even the smallest Madman reference, but like, shut up! But now you're out here making Dick Wickley references and I'm not supposed to make a big deal of it?
0: Well, only the true fan I know his true name is Do <laughs> D- 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 Whitman.
1: Whitman. I know that his name is Lamont Cranston, the shadow.
0: Don Draper knows. <laughs> Don
1: Draper knows. Just don't ask him because it's really sad whatever he says
0: (laughs) and he won't tell you you might just throw a drink in your face
1: so that was good fortune was getting this business school bad fortune came her way when a relative sent aggie a message saying that she for sure 100% 100% positively had a place for her to crash in los angeles and after three months in sunny california she was out on her bottom again but at least this time she had a job when she was on her bottom <laughs> she was working at a department store on broadway and moved into the salvation army for ladies on fifth and grand where the biltmore hotel now stands hmm. it's here where she meets evelyn connors another hard-working orphan girl the two were fast friends and soon switch gigs to become telephone operators she also worked Why
0: is... how can you just switch like identity so I... easily
1: not to boast too much about jokes i've made <laughs> Made on stage but like getting jobs in old times was like hey that seat's empty can I take it you want to give me some money they're like yeah sure did you circle the ad in the paper like that's a line that you wrote for the joke she also, yeah you did really it's the best line in the joke oh, and I didn't funny. write it huh. it's okay
0: I'm glad that's on tape we're still recording on tape right this is
1: the last podcast we do together <laughs> Aggie also had a job at the pig and whistle in Hollywood there she made a fr- really yeah she did
0: did she ever go to the uh, Egyptian
1: did she ever go to Amoeba um
0: <laughs> she did Hooters too
1: <laughs> she got the discount of Hooters from Carolyn too she made a friend who was a soda jerk there who was also an adopted son. Well, she wasn't adopted, but you know what I mean. Also, uh, child, bad, sad stuff.
0: That child of sadness.
1: One day, her Hollywood relative who had kicked her on her bottom came back and insisted for some reason that she moved back in with her Italian sweet Aggie that if she didn't move in with that relative again that she would report her to the juvenile authorities since she was too young to be living on her own. She told her worries to her. So she
0: was under 18, She, I think she so. was
1: like 16 at the time. She told all her worries to her soda jerk friend who was a... <laughs> who had a curious suggestion he was like well tell it to willie he had a curious suggestion for her not having to move back in he's like well you can do whatever you want if we were married let's get (laughs) married so they got married so in april of 1920 classic move to keep a girl from having to do something she doesn't want to here's another thing you don't want
0: to (laughs) from keeping your girlfriend from having to move back into the orphanage (laughs) marry her
1: marry her live in my orphanage which is the relationship that i won't father because i don't know how to love anything that's not me that's a soda jerk talking i know how to love things i'm capable of it we all see it
0: <laughs> i'll do it right now look i'm loving not this podcast um hey. so in april
1: of 1920 aggie married not the soda jerk in april of 1920 <laughs> aggie married the soda jerk and took his surname underwood a few years later the two moved to ocean park and opened their own soda fountain where aggie was the waitress and in august of that year she became pregnant with their first child at that point as being young and getting pregnant goes the underwoods moved back to the LA area and she took a job as a cashier in a silk store on Broadway near fourth where she was able to get Evelyn a job and then she became pregnant again with a second child and her sister her long lost sister moved in with her in Los Angeles and Aggie spent a great deal of energy at this point becoming a loving mother and a wife a hard-working stay-at-home mom at this point Agnes was an orphan who was now surrounded by family in her terms this is an accomplishment itself worthy of an episode segment <laughs> but it doesn't end there even though her sister was now contributing to the household the family always seemed to be struggling with money which is a- unrelatable problem doing my extraordinary <laughs> wealth.
0: you can struggle with it was there too much of it they didn't know where to put it i knew you could spend it you could invest it yeah you could struggle with it i guess sometimes i spend too much at dog fights but, <laughs> but that's how i made my first three <laughs> movies, <laughs> at dog fights pets, stay tuned for pets next month <laughs> We're
1: going to make all the pets fight each other. There's no history. Just fighting.
0: (laughs) Flipper versus Toto.
1: (laughs) Rin Tin Tin surprisingly comes from the other corner. Her sister was living her. They have another person in the household, but because of the kids and probably living in a house that requires money, they're still strapped for cash. She made a habit at this point of wearing her sister's discarded silk stockings, and no one wants that life. Aggie asked her husband for the money to buy her own pair of silk stockings, and he declined their request. They fought, and she was like, well, fine. I'll go out and get a job and buy my own stocking, see you in the funny pages. (laughs) And she really didn't want to go back to work. She liked being a stay-at-home mother to her kids, but the very next day, her old pal, Evelyn Connards, by the way, Aggie named her daughter after Evelyn. She asked Aggie if she was interested in a couple weeks of temporary work doing vacation relief as a switchboard operator at the Los Angeles Record, 1612 Wall Street in downtown. She accepted, I'm not sure which was a better reason, spite or silk, but (laughs) the Los Angeles Record was one of the six major metro (laughs) newspapers in LA in 1926. There was the Record, there was the Times, there was the Evening Herald, the Examiner, the Evening Express, and the Illustrated Daily News. The record was the smallest of the six. At the record, Aggie was soon enough taken under the wing of the record's women's section editor, Cynthia Gray, whose real name was Gertrude Price. I don't know why there's a distinction. I didn't figure that out. It's more hey.
0: manly. I got nothing. Um, I can't relate to that. <laughs> I can't relate to uh, anything manly.
1: Aggie became her catch-all assistant, a Cynthia Gray slash Gertrude Price. Okay. She was now making decent money and had her children watched by a neighbor who lived on Echo Park Avenue. Shout oh, no. out, which means that Aggie probably lived on the avenue at some point. Huh. Another shout out. Cynthia Gray I'm or sorry. Gertrude Price was a great reporter who would go on to work for the Los Angeles Daily News, which eventually absorbed the Record. Which anyway, she was Aggie's mentor. It has
0: been absorbed.
1: Aggie was 24 years at this point old. <laughs> what did I say? She was 24 20 points. She's <laughs> 24 points. <laughs> shy of being 24 years okay so it's 1927 the city was wrapped up in a tragic and sensational story William Hickman the fox was on the run for kidnapping and murdering the poor little Marion Parker who we talked oh, no. about on take a walk yeah Aggie was in the what news- is this
0: 1927 yeah 27
1: okay Aggie was in a newsroom on the record when he was caught in Oregon it was in an electric hum of the newsroom that activated something in Aggie Underwood
0: when he was captured she might be a replicant go on
1: <laughs> she doesn't know what she's feeling when he was captured Aggie <laughs> telephoned her husband to tell him about it and she was reprimanded by her boss Gertrude Price she said
0: Replimand- <laughs>
1: <laughs> sorry that's just the sound i make when i'm upset she said what would happen if the record had a story exclusively if you had telephoned your husband and if you told someone who mentioned it to the opposition we could be scooped on our own story this taught aggie an important lesson never talk outside about a story until it's in print circulating on the streets the city editor rod brink noticed aggie was interested and said if you're interested you take this dictation and that bug bit her and now she's spider-man
0: um <laughs> she's jay jonah jameson i got bit I by need pictures new- i got bit by a
1: radioactive newspaper. <laughs> her boss. Gertrude Price liked the idea and supported Aggie becoming a reporter. She started practicing typing by copying local stories, rewriting them, and then trying to find out different angles on a new lead hmm. on a story. She then learned how to write the lead, that banging first paragraph that will hook a reader in. Aggie rose to the ranks, first at the women's section reporter, then to the general assignment reporter. She started covering things like wrestling matches, when then moved on to auto races. She interviewed the man who had planted the first cotton in California. She was known for an unconventional- She scooped us. She scooped us, damn it. She was known for an unconventional method of reporting this is an example they gave when i read about it there are better examples of her unconventional stuff which is not unconventional now but it was back then but this is a story it's time's sh- new roman comic sans uh she covered the 1933 long beach earthquake and brought her son and her husband along because there had just been an earthquake so they didn't want to be separated from each other and after a series of aftershocks set off while they were walking that alley a two-story brick wall collapsed while she was porting and she said i read an article her reporter instinct saved her family from being crushed in her book she just said i said look out for no reason and they ran and we didn't get crushed <laughs> that's the way she thinks of it <laughs> what? More importantly than saving her family was her angles on stories. I keep writing angels. She's a Methodist. We're getting back to Charles Crawford, the gray wolf, who we talked about, who was part of the crime syndicate, the City Hall gang. Him and a guy named Herbert Spencer were gunned down. Listen again to the episode uh, on alcohol. That story was developing. There's a lot of stories covering the shooting and the surrender of the shooter named David Clark. Aggie saw that no one tried to interview Clark's parents. So she tracked them down on the phone book. They lived in Highland Park. She got an exclusive interview with them with photographs. She got a two column picture and story on the front page. With the headline, "Mrs. Clark says son is innocent." They say her ins-
0: catchy "Mrs. Clark, you've got a lovely son."
1: Mrs. Clark, you're trying to seduce me into
0: innocence. <laughs> you're trying to acquit me. <laughs>
1: they say her instincts were unconventional but it seems like her life as both an orphan and now as a family woman had given her the perspective to think about clark's family Hmm. i can't tell what kind of person aggie underwood is from her autobiography because she's very cocky sometimes and also she says stuff like this about her first front page article whatever elation i felt over the city side byline and the exclusive was dampened by the realization that i was a little green frog trying to get a chance (laughs) to swim among great big frogs in a great big pond whose depth i hadn't even tested rough translation i got a front page exclusive so what that just puts me in the running with regular reporters, like i'm not a big deal
0: and she invented frogger
1: she just hopped over everybody <laughs> i'm just a like, little
0: frog trying to cross a freeway which <laughs> don't exist yet.
1: but then rod brink the editor offered aggie an interview with herbert spencer's widow which she took and then she kept reporting and getting better opportunities and meeting more experienced reporters and learning from them and then getting better opportunities she just kept growing her skills yeah that's
0: impressive work ethic i think it is yeah, yeah.
1: the work ethic which i'm keep reading and it's it's of course inspiring and something i've heard all along is just keep showing up just learn stuff and keep showing up and keep showing up and don't go away and just keep showing up
0: wish we could learn that
1: i want to quit so bad everything uh <laughs> she became legendary for her hard-boiled quips and jabs While viewing the stiff sheet covered body of movie actress thelma todd after her mysterious death which has not been solved to this day it is rumor that aggie said of the men who surrounded her can you imagine what any of these guys would have given to be under the sheet with thelma todd <laughs> by the way her first autopsy she had ever attended <laughs> the guys around the office were like well we gotta break her in and it was kind of like a testing thing of like you want to go to an autopsy and see a dead body and she knew it was a test and she was one of the only staff members who didn't get sick when she saw Thelma Todd's hmm. dead body it was reportedly her and the guys from the coroner's office who had stayed for the show of the, the autopsy show. the show all the other staff members had uh as Joan Renner said tossed cookies
0: <laughs> still not a phrase I'm familiar with
1: <laughs> you should be you eat a lot of cookies and you vomit in public a lot you should be familiar with the phrase I, tossing
0: cookies don't make me vomit. <laughs> Cookies would me never vomit. do that. <laughs> Cookies don't kill people. You do. <laughs>
1: I've seen it. That same year, nineteen thirty five, there was a shake up, not an earthquake, a shakeup. <laughs> Look out. She was offered a job as a reporter for the Herald Express, which was the big leagues. The Los Angeles Examiner was founded in 1903 as a morning daily newspaper, and at the helm was old Citizen Kane himself, William Randolph Hearst, oh boy. Billy Randy. If you ever wonder how big of a deal he was, you should go visit his castle. It was the later years, I the fifties ish. I love it too. That pool, gimme. Nah, exa- I want
0: the movie room.
1: I almost said, well, well, he's gonna fill pee jars, but that's a different person. That's yeah, a different that's millionaire.
0: A, that's a different guy with a nice pool. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: Don't go in the pool Because it's just urine And fingernails (laughs)
0: His pool is one giant jar
1: Good mustache though The examiner That's no mustache It's four P. Uh in the later years, the fifties ish, the Examiner became the largest afternoon daily in the nation. The Examiner was known for eye-grabbing headlines, muck racking uh expo- Muck raking, raking expose <laughs> I put racking here. Muck raking expose, sensational stories, color comics.
0: She they better not flash her tar at you.
1: They had color comics. Crazy cat was published in the Examiner. That's you crazy know cat. It's uh say um, the one that George Harriman well, no, He doesn't need he throws the brick at the cat. George it's the,
0: Harrison throws a brick at a cat. George Harriman, the cartoonist. Oh George Harriman. Yeah, <laughs> throw, has a has a
1: comic strip. Okay. Where uh, a mouse throws a brick at a cat and the cat loves the mouse, and the, <laughs> I think the police officer loves the cat. It's weird.
0: I was thinking this was a scene from I Got My Mind Set on You music video. I thought he said George Harrison. It would make sense that he throws a brick at a cat in that music video. Yeah, no,
1: I see it. <laughs> He's got his eyes set on him. That's why.
0: <laughs> My mind.
1: They're also known for patriotic editorials that bordered nationalism. Hearst also ran the Evening Herald and the Express, which obviously was a suppertime read. And just to mention, in the 1960s, Hearst merged the two papers to become the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. Anyways, the Evening Herald has its roots back in 1873 and focus on local issues of Los Angeles and Southern California. The Herald started with a focus on agriculture, then moved to reporting primarily on Hollywood gossip and local scandal, reflecting the new 20th century los angeles where everyone has a skateboard and every starlet is a target
0: and every target is a jc Penney.
1: <laughs> most importantly it was a paper for the working class every person the los angeles herald express was on georgia street in downtown l.a between 12th and pico in case you need to know that it is now where the staples center and the 110 is in the 20s the decade that watched los angeles go from being a where's that city to a, oh it's over there city <laughs> it obviously becomes a metropolis we said many times the population similar to the la times building explodes <laughs> two of the more well-known editors of the herald at the time were two men uh yeah gross why, uh. Wes Barr and James H. Richardson. These two were especially known for their investigative reporting, as I read. They became prototypes for the morally ambiguous chain-smoking reporters you'd see in noir movies. In 1922, the Herald officially joined the Hearst News Empire. And in 1931, Hearst merged the Los Angeles Daily Herald with the Los Angeles Evening Express to form the Los Angeles Evening Herald and oh, Express. This is too much. Which was then the largest circulating <laughs> evening newspaper west of the Mississippi. I can't track all of that.
0: And it was also a train. train. The Herald Express.
1: Oh, he's Huntington. George
0: Huntington, who's a... <laughs> Creative. are you talking about george harrison again Yeah, no, I'm t- <laughs> you mean the- <laughs> uh, henry huntington the guy from henry Hun- the, henry i got henry my mind
1: set on you music video <laughs> the herald express is the one that she jumped aboard as she was offered a job what should be mentioned is that her accomplishments as a reporter had her noticed by hearst so what does aggie do when she's offered a job as a big lead reporter for william randolph hearst herald express at two dollars and fifty more an hour than she was making she turned it down <laughs> two reasons one was that at the short-staffed la record she was getting more experience because as we all know in a smaller company you just do more you build more skills mm-hmm. because there isn't enough people to do all the yeah stuff. i know I've seen
0: Mad Men. Dick Whitley, do Whitman. Whit-
1: Whitman. <laughs> also, she didn't have a car. Also, a loser, loser. Take the trolley, loser. Steal your husband's badge and <laughs> take the trolley. <laughs> I'm a reporter, I swear. Yeah, you were a husband's reporter.
0: You report on what's for dinner.
1: <laughs> what, are, what is for dinner? I'm really hungry. Miss please. Uh, <laughs> the Herald Express staff was also cutthroat about their competitive reporting, and that made Aggie apprehensive about wanting to join the Rex. So she still thought of herself as a little frog. Like I can't <laughs> make it. But it didn't matter because in 1935, the Los Angeles Record was sold to the Illustrated Daily News, and and some of her and her staff were the last ones to know about it. So she had to big league up. First, with the latest, was the slogan of the Herald Express, which was just show you what her new schedule of deadlines was going to be like. It should be said that her first piece for the Herald was an interview with some female pilot, Emily... Amalia Emily Earhart? No, no. That was her first interview.
0: No. Hired as a general
1: assignment reporter, little froggy Aggie Underwood paired up with photographer Perry Fowler, who was just as tough as she was. Together, the two covered fires and floods and accidents and weddings of the stars and morale cases of the stars and general mayhem, but Underwood and Fowler seemed to gravitate towards crime. Aggie said this, making our rounds like early morning milkmen, we hit up what was called the milk run, clearing up coverage of big and little crimes ranging from rapes and more rapes to robberies, oh burglaries, God. wife beatings, missing girls, major. Matric- traffic accidents, drunk rollings, filmed them brawls, and the complications that
0: blot police report records. Which are the minor crimes in that one? I'm going to say traffic accidents. I'm going to say major <laughs> traffic know. accidents are the and little And movie feet. fights. Or movie enough. fights, yeah. <laughs> Depends on the fight. It's a popular
1: anecdote that in 1939, Aggie helped solve a crime. The fight Hi. between Robert Wagner and Natalie Wood. Some fight. Uh, still can't figure out who won that. So helped solve a crime. She showed up to a scene of an accident on Angeles Crest Highway and met with Laurel Crawford, who said he had managed to flee his family's out-of-control car before it plunged a thousand feet down an embankment unable to flee were his wife his three kids and a border in their home aggie noticed that his clothes and his demeanor were both a little too neat when the sheriff asked her what she thought she said uh, these words guilty as hell <laughs> sure enough the family had a thirty thousand dollar life insurance price on their heads wow. that daddy wanted, Dattie <laughs> Double wanted that indemnity. Money. yeah well not really but yeah
0: daddy indemnity
1: <laughs> this is something i read from the la times aggie prided herself on giving murder cases catching names in a moment of inspiration and calculation the la times words not mine she dropped a white Carnation on the body of a waitress who had been stabbed to death just to give the story the name The White Carnation Murder, which is mm. a famous only murder. When she told
0: very unethical. what she didn't kill her. Uh, <laughs> do what you want with her. She's dead. No, she's
1: just dead, which it sounds like from what I was reading, because the press was pretty much invited to a crime scene. It seemed like the cops were like, just do whatever you want. Jeez, I don't care. <laughs> Clearly, I had not seen Nightcrawler. Neither have I, because it's dumb. For
0: Nightcrawler 2049.
1: When she told her photographer to take a picture of her creation, a cop objected and underwood smacked him with her purse <laughs> which
0: was his, filled with knives <laughs> which
1: is filled with crime scene evidence aggie took the big leads of the Hale express very seriously and that meant i suppose becoming desensitized and cynical she was quoted as saying i've never sobbed a story in my life i'm a reporter as for weeping i was too busy to think about hydraulics i want to think about the phone with a verdict and the quotes and i did she was not afraid of cursing out public officials or getting into fistfights with uncooperative interviewees oh my God. once even tallying off a surly frank sinatra oh. i love this story once is there she, any other kind i mean like he did
0: it his way. And now I'll do you my way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> she once, this is a really good story, had her son and his friends in town. So she took them to the studio to meet some actors. And my old enemy, Mickey Rooney, was spotted <laughs> and she asked for a photo. And he was really dismissive and kind of in a rush. And he was rude as he always is because he's a creep. So she dismissed him. It's like, oh, never mind. And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. And he's like red in the face. And she's like, yeah, I'm sure. But they got a photo with the beautiful Loretta Young who thanked Aggie and the boys for wanting a photo with her. Oh. That's how it's done, Rooney, you goon. Gooney. <laughs> Gooney. Mickey Gooney. She <laughs> had a reputation for knowing the middle names private phone numbers and carefully guarded secrets of everyone from police chiefs to gangsters to starlets she was I'd a like f- to have
0: her black book it's just curse words
1: she was a frequent of the tehachapi women's prison which was a new thing often interviewing the dangerous women of los angeles and offering the females perspective on these crime stories aggie was far from a feminist her first line of her autobiography her call me ishmael is i am no feminist that's <laughs> where the book starts but she certainly gave women a chance to speak in what seems like a time when that yeah, was not usual it felt like if the woman's sentence was too harsh for the crime she would report a more sensitive side of the criminal story to aid her to get released early or have time reduced it was once reported that aggie hit a wanted murderess in her home while her daughter's girl scout troop met in order to keep the criminal and her story away from other reporters oh my
0: god ethical as ever good mother
1: good mother here's a line from an article from the alley times and i'll read it verbatim because it's so delightful mobster mickey cohen boyle heights own which I wrote that, not them. Called her every time he landed in jail to give her an exclusive and phoned when he was hungry for one of her spaghetti dinners.
0: <laughs> Which he ate with his hands <laughs> to make sure that there were no knives in it. So
1: as I said, she worked as a general site reporter from 35 to 47. What happens in crime world Los Angeles in January of 1947, Daniel? Well... Mel Gibson? Yeah, that's it. Mel Gibson is He's a ghost every year on the highway. <laughs> you will be visited PCH. by
0: three Mel Gibsons.
1: Each with a different Mad sugar Max. bosoms
0: remark. Mad Max, the road warrior. And and Whitney Houston. Do you
1: mean Tina Turner? Yep. Thank you. 1947, <laughs> January. While well, the bisected bride of Doomwell is the short is found drained of blood and cut mm-hmm. in half on 39th North. Actually, it's closer to Coliseum Street, but whatever. It is to this day the most notorious cold case in Los Angeles history. Aggie Underwood was called from, I think, a detective. and She was assigned to the case and she, among with many other reporters, which was the problem in the case, claimed to have come up with the moniker, the Black Dahlia. According Did to- she
0: put a flower on it? <laughs> on the body?
1: Where can I leave this? What <laughs> half of the body can I leave this on? Oh, God. Because before that, it was called, it was referred to as the werewolf killings because there was a- really? Woman, Yeah, cut in half. The Black Dahlia came later from the media.
0: Could have been uh, Lon Chaney.
1: So according to Aggie, it has, is not a reference to the Blue Dahlia, which was the film, which I did not like. It was something that a bunch of locals at a drugstore in Long Beach would call Elizabeth Short. So she managed. They think it comes from that. And mm. Aggie takes credit for coming up with the Black Dahlia, but so do a lot of other people.
0: So we don't know. I believe her story. Though. I believe I came up with the Black Dahlia.
1: I, I definitely killed Elizabeth Short. <laughs> oh, oops. Oh, no, I didn't. And Natalie Wood. Oops. No, no, I did it again. Uh, she managed to interview Robert Red Manley, who was the first serious suspect in the Black Dahlia. Case. Her story on Manly was never concluded, however, because she was benched from the piece without warning, the biggest crime story of Los Angeles history at the time, of many times, and Aggie Underwood couldn't work it. She was at that point given a promotion. Aggie Underwood became the city editor of Los Angeles Herald Express, the first woman in the country to take that position at a major metropolitan newspaper. Round of applause. She herself.
0: Thanks. I put two hands together, but no noise was made. I
1: I heard. You want to do it again? Wow, okay. You're not good at this. This is why they don't want you to come into shows.
0: (laughs) Hey. Hey. That's not why.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She herself never understood the timing of the promotion and straight up reads like a conspiracy, but the position was a big deal for her and a big deal for women working in journalism. But to Aggie, she wanted to work with Black Dolly case. The Black Dolly case (laughs) is the one that got away. Later in life, her grandkids found out that again her Moby Dick. That's her Moby Dick, yeah. (laughs) Her grandkids found out that she was a big deal later in life and they asked her like what the name of the killer was. All she said was he's dead and it doesn't matter anymore
0: wow yeah uh, she could have just been saying that in general in terms, general so.
1: yeah when i read it i had the same input like, yeah wow, she knows oh, um, know. <laughs> as city editor she was the boss that everyone loves because they're good at the job but is also what scared is she of killed him her what she, if she, killed? she
0: killed the killer imagine yeah.
1: i'd love to see that movie <laughs> so she's the kind of boss that everyone loves because they're good at the job but they're scared of because they probably yell a lot i'm assuming that <laughs> second part but it, there's a lot of articles that say she was a super great boss aggie encouraged a jovial newsroom and would mm. buy reporters beers when it got too hot in the newsroom she got each reporter's a special christmas tie which is incredibly sweet apparently when the newsroom got too quiet she'd fire off blanks from a gun she kept in oh her desk God. drawer there are plenty of photos with her with a giant baseball bat that had her name on it this was used to keep off over hollywood press agents later as a joke they gave her a cartoon oh that's
0: not the joke
1: (laughs) it gets funnier (laughs) they gave her a cartoonishly large bat that read to aggie keep swinging it wasn't all baseball bats and guns her reporting was making her well known and respected she won scores of awards ranging from the most
0: now that's a fun turn of phrase scores of awards
1: scores of awards
0: scores of awards she
1: won scores of
0: awards
1: (laughs) 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 she won stuff like most outstanding women in journalism from the national federation of press women to the los angeles women's first woman of the year in professional journalism she was named in the first edition of who's who of american women in 1959 and ralph edwards featured her on his national tv show this is your life which must have been sad for an orphan like do you remember this family that kicked you out aggie underwood this is your life um
0: (laughs) here's half of the black dahlia (laughs) this is your life this
1: is your life oh this nightmare the audience is cats for some reason i can't figure it out i want to go home my teeth keep falling out <laughs> the journalism world respected her but not her management she was bitter that not one hearst executive ever said nice work over a story but also she said this no one said nice work or even they never bought me ice cream cone on my birthday so uh, help me uh, that's sad yeah. i would have bought her all the ice cream cones <laughs> in the 60s after the Hale express merged with a uh, uh, alley examiner and became the hail examiner they abandoned their morning edition and left into the LA times which was disastrous since television was about to start giving the <laughs> evening news away Anyway. When the two Hearst Papers merged, the Herald Express gang moved into the Examiner building on 11th Street and Broadway, and Underwood was moved upstairs as an assistant managing editor, which is not the same thing. She did that for about four years, which sounds really joyless and very mm. un like She wandered around, she said, like a half-assed executive, and after that feeling, after all she'd been through, that was enough. So in 1968, after 33 years of service and increasing circulation for the Hearst Papers, she retired. They had a huge retirement party for her at the Hollywood Palladium, which was overflowing. They received telegrams from mayors and senators and governors and lbj uh bob hope <laughs> whatever was he in, is whatever he is <laughs> what, bob hope emceed this event really yeah she seemed to be really happy uh, have a happy life as a retiree she was keeping busy gardening and cooking and being a grandmother but retirement didn't keep her quiet because in 1980 a novel from ovid damaris was released called the last mafioso and it claimed in this biography that aggie helped mickey cohen steal a million dollars god so aggie filed a 110 million dollar defamation suit claiming that she was falsely portrayed in this
0: so in the end he did help her make a million dollars i guess so a judge
1: dismissed missed the suit saying the statements were mere opinions three years later a state appeals court granted a rehearing but the case was never resolved because sadly in 1984 at the age of 81 sassy and lovable aggie underwood passed away she was an orphan girl crying 1981 on a- you say no she was 81 in 1984 oh, okay. she died she was an orphan girl crying in the, book. On- in the book 1984 in the book 1984 she died she was dead <laughs> in the book 1984 from george Orwell. She died. She was an orphan girl crying on a park bench who became the first female city editor of a major newspaper after her yeah. husband didn't want to give her money to buy silk <laughs> stockings. And I love her. I want to give another short segment to another really great woman of LA crime stuff. My, mom. My mommy. I'd like to give a shout out to Aggie's successor and biographer lady that I am quite fond of, Joan Renner, who runs the Rage LA Crimes blog, which I have been smitten over for years.
0: Did not we see her at the? We thing did at see her. When yeah, we went to the Cecil Hotel. Yeah,
1: we saw her there. She was sitting a couple of seats away from us, yeah. and I kept wanting to say like, during a- meeting Bob, over Bob, Bob Hope's estate. Yeah, she was there. I kept wanting to say <laughs> and, something.
0: And the Black Dahlia was sitting city- <laughs> <laughs> the
1: uh, city council were cats too. Many entries ended up from her blog in the first with the latest, which Joan wrote on, about Aggie. Aggie's her hero. You may have seen her on some crime shows. She's made appearances on about 20 episodes of various ID Discovery Channel programs like Deadly <laughs> Women, Evil Twins, Deadly Affairs, Evil Kid, Nightmare Next Door. I first encountered Miss Renner on the Raymond Chandler SO2 tour, tour and she mentioned that she was working with James Alroy and what turned out to be LAPD 53 and I followed her to Central Library talking at her her like any male does about her love of crime and i (laughs) talked at her any murderinos out there should look her up her blog is great she also runs a blog where she collects vintage cosmetic ephemera it's called vintage powder room Uh, according to her blog she's now working at the l.a county sheriff's deputy museum she was previously with the l.a police museum she's a fantastic writer and historian started
0: by Stebbin wells so
1: uh yeah aggie great ah, ah, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah that's pretty cool
1: i think it's pretty cool i have her autobiography usually i turn it when i'm done researching i'm like whatever i don't care after this but i'm gonna finish this book
0: now <laughs> suddenly women are involved and now you care about you i know. just
1: like the names you know it's like <laughs> women. i just get women so you know i
0: get women books
1: i get women books you know just think about that sometimes you, know? <laughs> you ever think about that you ever think
0: <laughs> no i'm a man what? so here's my the final one for tonight fly girl fly girl what you gonna do what you're gonna do when your plane disappears that's right. This is the big one. Partial local sweetheart, born in Kansas, just like my last one, but this time not in Manhattan, Kansas. Where? Atchison.
1: Atchison? <laughs> On July- I'm from Atchison. Uh- I'm also a female pilot, adored by everyone.
0: <laughs> so she was born July 24th, 1897. Little Amelia Mary Earhart, sweetheart. second daughter of Amy and Edwin. She lived most of the time with her grandparents in Atchison, but she spent the summers with her parents in Kansas City because her dad was a railroad attorney, so her parents were moving around a lot. He wasn't blowing glasses. blowing glasses smoke up arses
1: <laughs> that's how he makes a living
0: <laughs> by going around blowing smoke up of a bunch of councilman's arses that's my kansas accent i don't
1: i don't know who you're impersonating but i like and i hope that this doesn't drop anytime soon oh it won't oh will not sunny
0: <laughs> <laughs> it won't sunny back on the plains of kansas <laughs> so in 1908 she moved with her parents to des moines uh, oh des moines and it was here at age 12 at the iowa state fair uh-huh. that she saw her very first airplane and she didn't care at all. Ah! She was interested in a lot of things. That was not one of them. She played basketball. She took auto repair courses. She studied other cultures. She read the Quran. These were all things that girls at the time weren't she's, doing. She were not usual girl. Yes, yeah, she wasn't. She's not that kind of girl. Yeah. So that combined with having to move around so much made her something of an outcast among the other kids. In 1913, she moved again to St. Paul. And in 1915, she moved with her mom and her sister to Chicago after her mom left her dad for him taking part in his second career. That sounds kind of like being an attorney being an alcoholic (laughs) oh i'm an alcoholic now that's (laughs) my that's my colin farrell (laughs) so all of this moving around nobody you know can't make many friends our high school yearbook caption said a e amelia Earhart, the girl in brown who walks alone
1: jesus christ yeah
0: sad i'll show you i won't walk anymore (laughs) i don't need to walk i don't need to walk i'll fly alone After high school in 1916, she moved away to go to the Ogontz School near, really. I don't know, That's near really. Philadelphia. But during Christmas vacation in 1917, she went to Toronto to visit her Tor- Toronto, Toronto. to visit her sister Muriel, who is a nurse helping wounded soldiers from World War I. And she was so interested by that that she quit school and she moved to Toronto to learn first aid from the Red Cross. And she got a job at the Spadina Military Hospital where she served meals. She scrubbed floors. She played tennis with the patients as she worked in the pharmacy because she had some chemistry experience mm-hmm. a lot of the soldiers she was helping recover were aviators oh, cool! and on her off hours she'd sometimes watch the nearby royal flying corps train she even went to an air show where a stunt pilot dive bombed her to scare her but instead of running away she knew he was trying to scare her so she yeah. just stood there just to stick it to the guy and it was this close call with an airplane that also did nothing for her and she didn't care about airplanes at all <laughs> So when the war ended in 1918 she got hit hard by the Spanish flu and she was recovering for a year. They're That's all- the same
1: Spanish flu that shut down production for the Lincoln Brothers movies. Yeah, well yeah.
0: The, the same Spanish flu that they killed kill like everybody. Fl- yeah. yeah, that that like But Lincoln more importantly, had. it couldn't make movies. She couldn't do anything she learned how during her year off she learned how to play the banjo and she studied poetry ah, hey, hillbilly and she learned how Poetic engines, hillbilly she, she learned how engines worked in some weird precursor to becoming Steve Martin so in 1919 when she she was finally recovered she decided to continue her medical education and she enrolled at Columbia University in New York City Kansas to study pre-med but she soon realized that becoming a doctor actually wasn't something she was interested in doing and she was looking for a way out so lucky for her in 1920 her parents got back together and we're living in the land of reconciliation, Los Angeles.
1: Oh, that's where everyone gets back together.
0: (laughs) We need a change. And they insisted that Amelia move out there and live with them. So she gladly dropped out of school again and they moved to North Hollywood to live with her parents. So it was here in LA that finally Amelia got hit by the bug, not the one that creates J. Jonah Jameson. (laughs) And it wasn't the sort of bug that gave her the Spanish flu for a year either. This was a bug that flew, but not flu. You know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> it <laughs> so, was a flu bug. That gave her the flu. So on December 28th, 1920, her dad took her to the Winter Air Show at the dedication of Earl Doherty's. Oh, Doherty's. His new oh airfield. my
1: field. God, I regret <laughs> encouraging this.
0: In Long Beach. It was west of Long Beach Boulevard and south of Willow Street. So here's something finally clicked in her mind and she finally got deeply interested in airplanes and she begged her dad. She saw these blind... Plines flying. She begged her dad, "Let me! I want to go up in one of those things. So the next day he arranged for her to take a 10-minute flight for $10 with Frank Hawks at Rogers Field, which was at Wilshire and Fairfax, where Biggie would eventually be shot by an airplane like in North by Northwest.
1: <laughs> he couldn't run fast enough. <laughs> it was so Biggie. Yeah, you can not Cary Grant.
0: Biggie, Biggie, Biggie. can't you run? <laughs> he took her up over Wilshire, over the oil fields, over the dinosaurs, still dying in the tar pits because this was so long ago. And as she remembered it, by the time I got two or three hundred feet off the ground, I knew I had to fly. Wow. She got the flu. She
1: got the flu and she flew. She got the
0: bug. And then she was in the hospital the rest of her life and she's still alive. And with that, her great and horrible fate was sealed. The next step to getting herself flying was learning how to fly. So just a few days later on January 3rd, 1921, she went down to Kinnerfield at Long Beach Boulevard in Tweedy in what is now Southgate, Southgate. and yeah. approached a woman named Anita Nita, Snook.
1: You just keep making up notes and you can't find it, huh?
0: Anita, Anita, Snook, Snooky. She was one of the first... Anita, fir- Cookie. <laughs> she was tossing cookies. This time she was tossing Snookies. which
1: is she- just her name.
0: So, Nita was one of the first female pilots in the entire world. She was one of the first women to graduate from the Curtis School of Aviation, and she was only a year older than Amelia, but she had already been flying for four years. So, yeah. the lessons cost a dollar a minute, which was not the kind of money Amelia had. So, to get things started, she gave Nita a bunch of liberty bonds, and sh- her training began.
1: Quick, I only have Four dollars. Teach me everything you know.
0: You can cash this in 40 years. <laughs> I won't be around, so don't come crying to me, Snooky. Snooky. So her training began. Their lessons happened in a Curtis Canuck. Oh, a Canuck. Uh, and, uh, and let it be said, Nita did not think Amelia was a natural at all. She was constantly having to dodge power lines. Their first crash happened when the engine stalled and then landed just before hitting a bunch of eucalyptus trees near the Goodyear field. Oh, wow. Okay. They were fine, and yeah. Amelia immediately got out of the plane and started powdering her nose because she knew the news was going to cover the crash, because yeah. anything that happened in an airplane back then was news, and she said, yeah. we've got to look good when the reporters arrive. <laughs> oh my God. So another time, and then uh, Aggie came. Who are you? <laughs> Where am I? <laughs> what year what, is wh- it? What year, what year is it? Another time, they crash-landed in a cabbage patch. Yep. That also didn't deter her from flying, but she said it just made her not want to eat cabbages anymore. That's fair. They landed in mud a few times and got stopped short and thrown out of the airplane. Oh God. None of this stopped her, though. She wanted to learn everything about flying. She would regularly be at the North Hollywood Library reading anything she could about airplanes. The library that's there now was in a different location at the time, but she was living in that area later in her life also, so I think... She was in the one that's there now also. Okay. So she wanted to live the lifestyle of a, a flyer. So this is when she cut her hair short to look like the other women pilots. And she bought herself a leather jacket that she would sleep in to make it look worn out because people were making fun She's of her. pretty cool. She would take the lessons on the weekend, but during the week she had to work to pay for it. So she had a ton of different jobs. She was a stenographer. She was a filing clerk at the Los Angeles Telephone Company. She was at the Pacific Bell Company on Magnolia in North Hollywood. She was a truck driver. She worked in a gypsum mine with her dad near Las Vegas she took a photography class at usc to become a professional photographer because she she was just doing flying for fun she didn't yeah, think it was her hobby yeah exactly and she she was saying oh maybe i'll be a photographer and fly on the side but she made enough money not only to pay for her lessons but on her 25th birthday on july 24th 1922 she bought her very own airplane a kinner no uh yes she <laughs> uh, sorry i hadn't read that far my intern typed this up thank you intern Thanks. You're welcome. Thank you, Greg. She could have bought an old World War One surplus plane, but she wanted something special. She ended up paying four times as much to go down to the Grand Central Air Terminal hey, in yeah. Glendale and bought herself a brand new Kinner Air Stir.
1: It still stands to this day, that airport. It's, I mean, it's not an airport anymore. It's Disney,
0: but whatever. <laughs> they make uh, imaginations fly. So she bought it for $2,000. It was bright yellow, so she nicknamed it the Canary, and That's she was good. in love with it. She nicknames everything you'll find. Finally, after 25 hours of lessons, she was ready to take in a row. That was her first record. She The longest Longest plane lesson. Yeah. So she was ready to take her first solo flight. And as one pilot on the ground told her when she was done, you didn't do anything right but land rottenly. (laughs) Regardless, on December 15th, 1921, she got her license from the National Aeronautics Association. And just two days later, she flew in her first exhibition at the Pacific Coast Ladies Derby at the Sierra Airdrome in Pasadena.
1: I have a question. Yeah. Was she a great pilot?
0: No. Okay,
1: because now that you're talking, and I've I've known about her almost my entire life, I knew that she was a female pilot, and she did things that people never done before. But I, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're no, a she great wasn't pilot.
0: really. I'm, I'll get into it a little bit more, but okay. she she was an average pilot. Okay, she didn't win these derby. Like she wasn't winning yeah, these. That's things. what
1: that. Now that you said that, I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know if she yeah, was an. Awesome she was pilot. A, she, she was a, a, was a, a pilot. She, she was a pilot who was yeah. a female, and she did things that no one done before. She
0: was a trailblazing pilot, yeah. chem trailblazing pilot. If you believe Roseanne, which I do, she and Nita had become good friends and went on double dates together. You know, Snooky. But in August 1922, Nita had a son and too many of her pilot friends had died in plane crashes and she knew her luck would eventually run out so she wanted to be around her son. So she quit flying. So Amelia's lessons transferred over to a guy named Johnny Monty Montijo. That is a name. Who did stunts for Goldwyn studio and gave lessons at a field across from Kinnerfield. But this was perfect for Amelia because she wanted to learn advanced flying techniques and emergency maneuvers and Monty being a stunt pilot that's what he was able to offer her and pretty quickly she started getting more daring. Just a couple months later on October 22nd 1922 she flew in an air meet at Rogers Field and became the first woman to fly solo above 14,000 feet which was actually, it was actually extremely dangerous yeah. because when she was up there her engine stalled oh, and she had to go into a tailspin to get down and there was a ton of fog so she pulled up right after the fog but if the fog had been Lower, she would crashed into crash the
1: ground <laughs> directly into the ground.
0: Yeah. great pilot. Then on May sixteenth, nineteen twenty-three, she got pilot license number sixty seventeen from the Federation Aeronautique Internationale. She was the sixteenth woman ever to do so. So now she was eligible to compete in international competitions. She joined the Long Beach Air Circus.
1: Hey, that's cool. I would like to have that shirt.
0: <laughs> we'll also be selling those. It'll say uh, Pan Pacific Association on the front, Long Beach Air Circus on the back, party in the middle. <laughs> Because uh, we couldn't fit it in. It's under the shirt.
1: If you're wearing it. <laughs> it says it on the chest. tag. Yes, yeah, it says it on the tag.
0: You're the party. So in March 1923, she was in the ladies sports plane special at the Air Rodeo at the Glendale Airport. But by May of 1924, her family was running out of money and she was forced to sell the canary that she loved oh, so much to support canary. them. Strangely, Amelia never had any serious accidents the entire time that mm-hmm. she'd been flying. But the guy who bought the canary on his first flight in it, he crashed it and died.
1: Oh my God. Golly. Curse!
0: (laughs) (laughs) You win this time, Amelia. So, the airplane money wasn't enough anyway, and her parents divorced again, and Amelia moved cross country with her mom to Boston, which had to have been pleasant, and thus ended her first stint in LA. She tried in 1925 to go back to Columbia, but she ran out of money again, so she got a job as a teacher and then moved back to Boston in 1927 to be a social worker at the Denison House, which was a woman run settlement house for immigrants, and she taught English to people from Syria and China. But Destiny couldn't keep her away from planes for very long. 1928, a pilot slash flight promoter named Hilton H. Rayleigh had a plane named Friendship, and he wanted to take a sp- he wanted to make a splash, not hopefully not take a splash. Yeah, that's he two wa- different things. <laughs> he wanted to make a splash by finding the first woman to fly across the Atlantic, just like Charles Lindbergh did. Word got out that there was a woman who could fly, living in Boston. And just her luck, she kind of looked like Charles Lindbergh too. So in April 1928. She does.
1: Yeah, I get. You're, you're right.
0: She They're does. both cute girls. So
1: Lindbergh's a cute, tall girl.
0: <laughs> in April 1928, Rayleigh asked her if she was interested and she responded yes immediately, but it turned out to not be what she thought. She wasn't going to be flying the plane. She was just going to be the first female passenger on a transatlantic flight.
1: That's not the same thing.
0: No. In Friendship were Wilmer Stoltz flying, Lou Gordon as the mechanic, and Amelia Earhart, as she put it, a sack of potatoes. <laughs> 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 they left from New... Watcher of the gas. <laughs> Make sure... There's no one else coming. <laughs> Count um, the
1: clouds. I don't know. <laughs> make
0: sure the air's up. They left from Newfin- Newfoundland Newfoundland. on July 17th, 1928 and landed in Wales on July 18th. And Amelia, even though she didn't really do anything, became an instant celebrity. She wrote a book about her experience called 20 hours, 40 minutes, which is how long it took
1: 20 hours, to write 40 minutes, minutes the book. of being a potato sack.
0: <laughs> My life as a potato, potato sack, sack. <laughs> and other musings. With this book, she toured around the country, giving lectures about her experience and she became more and more famous. Man. Managing her publicity tour was a writer named George Putnam who saw the wow. f- potential of a female pilot as a great story. He also saw the potential of a female pilot as a great wife. He fell in love with Amelia, and Amelia had no interest at all are you a
1: plane I I only love planes I only
0: love planes and also only that barely for most of the time (laughs) also George was already married to the heiress of the Crayola company you can't erase a Crayola but in 1929 he divorced her to pursue Amelia who wasn't interested in getting married to anybody at all she said of the whole thing I think I may not ever be able to see marriage except as a cage until I am unfit to work or fly or be active and of course I I wouldn't be desirable then
1: I respect all of the things she just said
0: she's cold hearted
1: get married He divorced his wife.
0: You better marry him,
1: you Lindbergh-looking lady.
0: He threw out all his Crayolas or something Uh, for you.
1: I only read half their article.
0: So, least of all, she didn't want to marry her publicity guy who didn't even like flying. Nevertheless, nevertheless, he persisted in asking her to marry him five times and every single time she said nope. I hate this guy. Then finally he asked her again in the most romantic place on earth the Lockheed plant in Burbank and she finally said okay I guess. Fine. But she wrote to him saying I want you to understand I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness to me nor shall I consider myself bound to you similarly. So I'm going to say definitively that they were swingers. She wouldn't take his name either for publicity reasons. She also said if in a year they were unhappy they're getting a divorce. So oh. with those timeless vows. <laughs> they got.
1: Hey, save it for our wedding day.
0: So they got married in Connecticut on February seventh, nineteen thirty one. They didn't have a ring, so they had to borrow his mom's romances. L uh,
1: is for the way you look at planes. L is for the oh. way you look at me. Don't look at me. Don't look at me.
0: O is oh no, I don't love you. <laughs> In 1934, the happy, I guess, couple moved back to Los Angeles into a bungalow in North Hollywood. But in 1935, George became the head of the editorial department at Paramount Studios. So they had a little more money and moved to 10042 Valley Spring Lane in Toluca Lake. The house is still there. They were some of the first people to buy property in Toluca Lake. They chose that area because the best planes in the world were being built by Lockheed and Burbank, and she wanted to be near the action, but also because they'd be near a friend of hers, Paul Mance, who was a Hollywood stunt pilot that gave her technical advice. And also, it's a nice area. She used to golf at the Lakeside Golf Club. But enough about her weird love life. Let's get back to her personal achievements, the things she actually loved. In August 1929, she bought a brand new single-engine red Lockheed Vega 5B that she nicknamed Old Bessie. Ace pilot she was, she placed third in the <laughs> first Santa Monica to Cleveland Women's Air Derby. Hey, and- that's
1: in the box. She placed...
0: Will Rogers called this race the Powderpuff Derby. <laughs> On July 5th, 1930, she set the women's flying speed record at 181.18 miles per hour. 1931, she set the autogyro height record at 18,415 feet. Wow. Then in 1932, she decided to live up to the nickname people gave her of Lady Lindy and match Lindbergh's achievement from five years earlier of flying across the Atlantic solo, but this time as a woman and not racist. So on May 20th, thirty 1930- two Which is
1: an achievement. We should not dismiss it as a Also joke. in the box. Also the first the woman box.
0: not to be racist, Amelia Earhart. So on May 20th, 1932, the anniversary of Lindbergh's flight, she set out from Newfoundland- Newfoundland. Newf- Newfoundland. In her-, in her uh, My accent's better. In her vega, and she headed toward Paris. Texas. Across the, Atlantic. <laughs> the first transatlantic flight from Canada to the Texas. Texas. The weather was so bad that at a certain point, ice started forming over her wings, and she dropped 3,000 feet before she could correct herself towards the ocean. Also, she got lost along the way in some thick clouds. And when she finally found land, she ended up parked in a field of cows in North Ireland. North Ireland!
1: It's not better than mine. It's about the same, though. (laughs) I wish that scare where she almost hit the ocean would have taught her a lesson. Hey,
0: don't hit the ocean. (laughs) The ocean hits back. So she landed in North Ireland around a bunch of cows the next day. She wasn't in Paris, but she did cross the Atlantic solo and in record time also. It took her 14 hours, 56 minutes, the first woman to have ever done this and the second person ever to have done this alone. She was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for this becoming the first woman ever to receive that but 1932 wasn't over for her as she also became the first woman to fly solo across the US from L to newark then in 1933 she did that same trip again in the national air races but even faster still a bad pilot on january 11th I was just about to say,
1: you know it sounds like she's a good pilot i don't know <laughs> she sounds like a fast pilot which i appreciate if there's she's one fast. thing that's
0: safe about flying it's being it's, fast it's
1: being really fast so
0: on january 11th 1935 she flew alone for 17 hours and seven minutes from honolulu to oakland making her the first person to fly from hawaii to the american mainland the first person to fly anywhere solo in the pacific and the first person to have ever flown solo across the Pacific and the Atlantic. All in one one trip. That was one trip? Yeah. Then later that year, she became the first person to fly solo from LA to Mexico City and then from Mexico City to Newark, which are kind of, you know, these records are kind of getting like, well, I flew from the middle of Texas. Yeah, I was
1: the first person to ever fly from the bottom of Canada to the top (laughs) (laughs) of Mexico. First person.
0: Write it down. First person on a Tuesday, that is. The flying didn't go unnoticed. She was a huge celebrity during all this. She was on the cover of Vogue in 1932. She was in a place of honor at the nineteen thirty two LA Olympics sitting with Faye Ray and Douglas Fairbanks, which King Faye Kong Wray. of his own. She had an endorsement deal with Lucky Strike. Again, I've seen Mad Men, I know what that is. It um, makes
1: sense now. I get Dave Whitley. <laughs> I
0: get DeWittly Whitley smoking. <laughs> Do Whitman. In nineteen thirty three, partly to try to recoup the money after her Atlantic flight, she started a clothing line. Did well, you know that? I
1: didn't I had no idea.
0: She personally designed twenty five outfits of dresses and shirts. The tag had her signature in black writing over the image of a red airplane. That's great. Some of the clothes were made out of things like parachute silk and and maybe the Aggie wanted some of that. She loves silk. And also airplane wing material. And the buttons were shaped like propellers. That's All of that sounds great. Yeah. They sold at Macy's and it did not last long, but it sounds really nice. I
1: bet they're worth like millions If of any of those
0: now. still exist. Well, I mean, they're probably all missing everything of hers. She had a
1: box of it. The last box.
0: <laughs> she took it all with her <laughs> on her, her flight. Her. I'm going to be the first person to fly their own clothing line <laughs> all around the world. To write an article about me. Do a podcast about me. What's that? In 1934, the Fashion Designers of America named her one of the 10 best dresses women in America. She also had a line of luggage that was still selling into the 90s. She had a personal photographer named Albert Bresnick. She wrote a book called The Fun of It, but it wasn't all just about her. She actively encouraged people to give flying a try, either commercially or for fun. She was made aviation editor for Cosmopolitan wow. Magazine and was a promoter for what would become TWA, and she was also vice president of National Airways. More specifically, she promoted women's rights and encouraged women to try flying and not to accept the careers that society was forcing on them. In 1929, she founded and became the first president of the 99s, which is an international organization for women pilots Mm -hmm. named because out of the 285 licensed female pilots in the US, 99 of them joined when they were asked. In 1935, she even became a visiting professor in aeronautics and female career consultant at Purdue University. She used her celebrity to inspire women by proving in front of all of them that a woman could do anything a man could do and that flying was safe for everybody Mm -hmm. uh, most of the time. (laughs) That being said it it wasn't always safe and Amelia Earhart wasn't an ace pilot. She had determination and she had an ability not to panic but her publicity stuff got in the way of her being able to train more and become better at flying but that combination of a need for publicity and not being fully trained in a lot of ways Uh is what led to what would become her final flight. She was getting to a point in her life where she was becoming too old to do these insane marathon things and she had decided to take one final trip doing something that nobody had ever done before which was circumnavigating the entire world around the Uh. equator which is the longest route because yeah Earth's chubby. Yeah. I believe in the chubby earth theory. I'm a a chubby (laughs) earther. Chubby earther. Who is the brother of chubby checker. She said, I have a feeling that there is just about one more good flight left in my system and I hope this trip is it. Uh, What a miscalculation. I know. She was not wrong. She wanted to do this before she turned 40. So she set to work planning the trip with George under the carob tree in the courtyard of their house in Toluca Lake. That's where this was all planned. In Toluca Lake. When word got out of her plan, Purdue University bought her a brand new plane. Specifically designed for this trip. It was a twin engine Lockheed Electra L10E. We all know the model. <laughs> it's not the F, it's not like the F or the D. Yeah, it's the, L. It's the E. The it was made in Burbank and it cost $80,000. It was 38 feet 7 inches long with a wingspan of 55 feet and was 10 feet 1 inch tall. But with the modifications she had made on it, it weighed 6,000 pounds more than the regular ones mm-hmm. because this one had 10 gas tanks that could hold 1,151 gallons, which could take it a little over 4,000 miles without having to refuel. It could hold 80 gallons of oil and had a max speed of 177 miles per hour, which was 25 m- hours, 25 m- hours uh, per meter. <laughs> it was a little bit less than other planes because there it was, it was so much stuff y- in it. You said I, I can
1: hold all that gas, and immediately thought it's too heavy. <laughs> it's I It's way too heavy. It had
0: a station for a navigator, no passenger windows. It had an autopilot system, extra batteries, radio equipment, and also equipment to test atmosphere samples and inspecting landing areas around the world. Yeah. This is why Amelia called it her final nickname, the Flying Laboratory, okay. which was my basketball nickname as well, because <laughs> I was really smart. She test flew it on July 21st, 1936 at what is now the Burbank Airport, formerly the Union Air Terminal. I don't even know if uh, that's what it's called anymore. The Burbank, it's like Bob Hope. John Wayne. Yeah. I don't know. North Hollywood, North but not North Hollywood, North Burbank.
1: <laughs> I've heard it called Bob Hope before, but I don't know if it's It like used on... to be Bob Hope. Okay. We Bob all used no to Hope. be Bob Hope. Yeah,
0: Bob, Bob Hopeless. A new Bob Hope. A new Hope Airport. Keep going? No.
1: <laughs> no!
0: <laughs> so she tried it out. It was up to her standards. And then a few more months of planning, she departed from Burbank Airport. There's a video of her leaving on this mm. flight. Left for her trip's official starting destination of Oakland. The plan was to head west from there to Hawaii and then beyond. With her was her friend Paul Mance, as technical advisor, her navigator, Fred Noonan, and another guy named Harry Manning. And on March 17th, 1937, they departed Oakland for Hawaii. Four of them did? Uh, uh, you'll, you'll see. Okay. Immediately, they started having trouble with the plane, and they had to stop at Luke Field and Pearl Harbor. They had a bunch
1: of Japanese planes following them.
0: <laughs> then while they were there, the weather conditions changed, and that made the route they planned seem less possible. Then they tried to take off again on March 20th. They crashed before they could leave the airfield, and that was the end of the trip. Okay. That's it. The plane had to be sent back to Burbank for repairs, and then Mance and Manning dropped out, and they should have stopped there, but Amelia and Noonan were not deterred, and they just went back to LA to wait until the plane was fixed. Uh And when it was ready, they decided to continue the trip, just the two of them. Only this time they'd head east instead of west, so they flew out again from Burbank and then to Miami. And on June 1st, they were off for real. They followed the equator, stopping in Puerto Rico, Suriname, Brazil, Senegal, Chad, Sudan, Ethiopia, India, Burma, Thailand, Singapore, Indonesia, and Australia. And then on June 29th, they around in Leh, Papua New Guinea, where Amelia had the second worst thing possible to happen to her on a trip like this, and she got struck with dysentery. So they... St-
1: what is this, the Oregon Trail?
0: <laughs> just ford the rest of the way. It's safer. So they stayed for a few days, but on July 2nd, it was time to move on to the next stop of their journey, which was the tiny Howland Island, 2,556 miles away. So to make the trip easier, they left behind some of their long-range radio equipment to make room for more fuel, which in Hyde. High- Site was not the best idea. And they left at 12.30 p.m. There was a U.S. Coast Guard ship called the Itasca who was stationed nearby the Howland Island in case anything happened. And they were in regular contact with them. But the conditions were worse than they anticipated. And there was some miscommunication with the ship because the distance they were flying during this leg of the trip is almost as long as the entire United States. So the plane and the boat were operating in different time zones. So there was confusion on what time they were expected to be there. So towards the end of the flight, they radioed the boat saying that they were low on fuel but they were within 100 miles of the island but because of the miscommunication they couldn't locate the ship and the island itself is it's a tiny island that's like really close to sea level so if there's like a big wave you can't really see it and because they left behind most of their radio equipment they couldn't broadcast out far enough to reach anybody so then at 7.42 a.m. the ship received a radio transmission from Amelia saying we must be on you but we cannot see you fuel is running low been unable to reach you by radio we are flying at a thousand feet then at 8.45 a.m. they were their weak signal of her saying we are running north and south and that was the last anybody's ever heard of Amelia Earhart. Airport, Air Amelia uh, airport Amelia yeah. Airport. The Atasca couldn't find them. FDR launched a $4 million search with 66 planes and nine ships looking desperately to find her. Nothing was found. On July 18th, 1937, the search was called off and she was assumed lost at sea. She only had another 7,000 miles to go until oh. her trip was over and she was just three weeks away from her 40th birthday. George didn't give up though and he continued the search with his own money. He mm-hmm. tried everything, naval experts, he tried psychics, but in October, even he had to give up. A couple couple... years later on January 5th, 1939, the Superior Court of Los Angeles declared her legally dead. And then there's the conspiracy theories. One possible explanation is that they crashed on the Nikumaroro or Gardner Island because later on Navy planes flew over it and they saw signs of recent habitation and they found a piece of plexiglass that could have fit the shape of her plane's window. And supposedly they also found a woman's shoe and a human finger bone, (laughs) but there was no sign of any wreckage or the rest of the bones. Yeah. Why would they leave just a finger? Yeah, unless it's a symbol. This, a message. Is, this is their calling card. Yeah. We leave fingers all over the <laughs> Pacific. In May 2012, on another island nearby, they found an old jar of freckle cream with could have been hers. Yeah. Then there are the people who say they were spies for the U.S. government heading towards the Marshall Islands. And from there, the theories diverge in a few directions. There's the possibility that they were captured and executed by the Japanese, or they completed their mission and came back to the U.S. with new identities, or they turned on the U.S. and helped the Japanese plan the bombing of Pearl Harbor. She had been there before. Yeah. Then there was the picture that came out a couple of years ago that was supposedly from the Office of Naval Intelligence. That was a picture from the Marshall Islands with two people in it that looked a lot like Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan mm-hmm. and an airplane in the background. The capture theory also gets fuel from a telegram that George Putnam supposedly got after World War II was over from the Pentagon about an internment camp in Japan that got liberated, and it was an anonymous message addressed to George saying, Camp liberated, all well, volumes to tell, love to mother weird yeah or there's the theory that we just don't know and we'll probably never know a sonar scans and deep sea robots have searched the replicants they searched the area and there was no trace of anything but obviously her memory is still alive and well throughout her last trip she had been sending letters and diary entries home to george which he put together and published after she died as last flight and in 1939 he wrote her biography soaring wings the vega b she flew across the atlantic in is in the smithsonian which when i i, I saw it and i was thinking like wow that's amelia Earhart's plane wait a minute they, didn't, they found it? <laughs> Is she in it, too? <laughs> I have too? a lot of questions. <laughs> so more locally, there's a plaque to her at the portal of the Folded Wing Shrine to aviation in Burbank. And in 1970, a teacher at Valley College made a statue of her that they put in front of the North Hollywood Library. The one that's there now was put there in 2002. But the fact that there's still so many theories about her lets you know how important yeah. and interesting she was. But it's important not to forget that she was a woman trying to prove a point mm-hmm. that she put best in a letter she left for George right before her last trip that said, please know... I am quite aware of the hazards. I want to do it because I want to do it. Women must try to do things as men have tried. When they fail, their failure must be but a challenge to others. It's beautiful. So little girls out there, go try the same thing.
1: <laughs> go try to fly the
0: equator. <laughs> the little nine year old and eleven year old, you two should fly around the world. Around the world.
1: You can do it now. <laughs> she was so progressive, I didn't realize how like not anti-marriage necessarily, but kind of anti-marriage.
0: Yeah. She had an obsession. Yeah. And marriage didn't fit
1: into it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm gonna learn how to fly this damn thing. Yeah. I didn't know about the conspiracies until maybe like two or three years really? ago. Yeah, I thought it was... Everyone just kind of shook hands and agreed that she disappeared into the ocean. And then people were like, well, actually, (laughs) she might have been in a cave somewhere.
0: I mean, it's just so... The ocean is just so big. It's so hard to comprehend that you could just disappear into it. But you so easily could. We
1: saw that a couple years ago. Yeah, with with the full flight. The full flight of... Which, by the way, is my worst nightmare to be lost at sea. Don't ever
0: let me get lost at sea.
1: Even when you're talking right now about the the island that was at sea level, like a rogue wave could wipe it out. Can you imagine being on land and then suddenly you're underwater and you're just drifting out in the yep. ocean and like and you were still talking like, I've always liked her Me too.
0: she just looks cool she does look really
1: cool and because her time is sort of limited as when she was popular she's always had one look and I yeah. like that a lot it's yeah. very <laughs> recon- we never her. saw her get weird looking we never saw her get weird looking or go for like a long hair phase yeah, yeah.
0: we never saw her sergeant pepper look
1: we didn't go through the revolver years of Emily Earhart. <laughs> but
0: yeah it's weird to think that like if she I, know, I mean you could think that about any of these people who yeah. died young but she could have been alive when we were alive yeah or, Maybe she was. I don't know. Who knows? She
1: might still be alive. Yeah. She, she, might, liberated she could be 120 years
0: old. When that picture came out a couple yeah. of years ago, I kept thinking like, wait, so she's still alive? She was yeah. born in like the late 1800s. She be dead, but like
1: even if I found out she had lived I, like 10 I, years past when we all yeah. thought she died, i still get excited. I know. Yeah. I,
0: I'm finding that between thinking she could still be alive and that her airplane is in the Smithsonian, ah. I don't have a good grasp on reality.
1: <laughs> so those are some of the ladies from Los Angeles yeah. history. A madam. Just a few. A we have a long, there's a long yeah, list also. We just... Yeah. Picked a few. I knew that I was going to do Aggie right away when mm-hmm. we picked it. And I was going through the crime books. Because I was thinking of a, a picture I saw of a female undercover officer named Florence Coberly, which I found out later. But I was looking through the, the books. And then I ran into the picture of Brenda Allen. am like, oh, here we are. This yeah. is exactly well, what we wanted to do for a while. Well, you
0: suge- I was doing one thing. And then you suggested oh, yeah. uh, Alice Wells. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is much better.
1: Yeah. What was the original one you were going to do? I can't remember what it was.
0: <laughs> it was the, the woman from The Island of the Blue Dolphins woman. Yeah, but then I realized that's not Los Angeles. Yeah, that's Sanamar Road. <laughs> That was fun. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun, guys. That was a lot of fun. I hope we got a good time. <laughs> well, you know what? It's also a good time. Yeah. What? It's always a good time to too. leave us a review on iTunes. It's
1: really easy. Sometimes you can just go on your uh, app to the podcast and search La Meekly and just write a couple of things, a sentence yeah. or two.
0: Five stars. Tell us how many of your children listened to it. We liked it. I liked it. By the well. way, we keep making fun of it. That was really nice. That was to really read. sweet. And yeah. you
1: sent me that message, and I thought, yeah, that's our demographic is, is yeah, young yeah. children. Yep. Boys. <laughs> hey, we don't know that they're boys. We don't know that they're boys. I don't, did they say Hey boys No, I uh,
0: hey, g- g- leave us a review on iTunes and tell us you're it. a boy or a girl. Uh ever W, just leave it. <laughs> yeah, leave us a review on iTunes, some stars on your podcast app on your iPhone, anything like that. It's easy. It helps us. It helps more people find us. Yeah,
1: we become more visible, unlike, unlike Island. Howland Island. <laughs>
0: Don't let us get swept up by the waves here.
1: We are on all the social medias. We are on Instagram la underscore meekly. We're on Twitter at la meekly. We are on Facebook, Facebook. search la meekly.
0: Tumblr la meekly mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that has the archive and all that. Patreon. We have
1: a Patreon page. We'd like you to help us support us. We'd like to make shirts and get a real website. Or an app. Or an app. Uh, Our own uh, app. We'll have our own.
0: uh, I've always dreamed. My grandfather always told me the greatest accomplishment a man could have is starting his own app.
1: (laughs) I don't care what it does. If you could like throw a donut, through a basketball yeah. hoop, and some sort can, of game,
0: if you could slice through fruit, I don't know. Just
1: reinvent Scrabble. Just keep doing that.
0: <laughs> Patreon, we have stuff like postcards we've been and we've sending uh, postcards out to people. We
1: have uh, in stacks. We take pictures of me and Daniel at different places. Yeah, or if, but yeah. There's a
0: certain level where if you do it, we'll give you a little special bonus thing every month. Mm-hmm. No one's done it yet, so thank we, God they won't know. Yeah. <laughs> if you want, to have a question, oh, comment, yes. or anything like that, email us la.meekly at gmail.com If you want to be the subject of a field trip episode or know someone who would. Would be a good subject. Also, email us. Yeah, we email just, us. Just there.
1: We just did one with the Mystic Museum, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, and we
0: have a really fun one coming up this month. Also, with yeah. the
1: Breakfast Club. Super excited for yeah. that to come out because I remember recording it and a cat trying to get out of a bag and I shoved <laughs> them back in and it was all giggles after that. It was
0: uh, graphically shoving that Graphic cat in the bag,
1: cartoonishly shoving <laughs> that cat back in the bag. That cat, by the way, very healthy.
0: Good. We'll, we'll talk more about that. Yeah. We'll have another update on the, the Healthy Cat. Yeah, Healthy Cat, which is his uh, name now. Uh, that Darn Cat or whatever comic you were talking about before that George Harrison was in. It's
1: crazy Cat! Uh- <laughs> Until next time. Yeah. Pets.
0: <laughs> Which is pets, little Witches kids, pets. don't forget. Until next time, the shadow knows. The shadow knows it's pets.
1: Oh, I forgot to give a shout out to my mom, who's a wonderful woman. Thank you for all the support and love and all that stuff. Thank you. Well, yeah,
0: my mom too, okay? She doesn't know.
1: I was talking about your mom.
0: Hey. 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 Oh, your mom. <laughs> Anything else?
1: That's it. That's it. That's it for that's us. That's it for
0: us. See, see you in you. pets. <laughs> see, <laughs> see, see you in pet month. So uh that's been this episode of LA Meekly, the biggest thing since 2013 since five lobsters <laughs> <That> makes sense <laughs> yeah
1: i like it